Welcome, you trout-bum troubadours, you hatch-matching, code-cracking, bug-crazed crusaders. Of course, you dirty, nymphing ninjas. But today, this podcast is especially for you slinging meat, savage streamer, sequacious addicts that love the chase and the kill of the big streamer addiction. And thus, we are another episode of another riveting episode of Hollowed Waters Podcast. We are glad you are joining us, and we hope all our listeners have enjoyed um, the last four parts. Oh, my God. We're still recovering, Joe Trebios and I, recovering from the four-part Catskill DocuPod series. DocuPod, I'm going to start a new word, DocuPodimentary. DocuPodimentary series, documentary series that we did on the Catskill Trout Legacy and Dynasty, all the rivers and the hatches and the tactics. And it was 15 hours of Joe and I, two lifetimes of two old grumpy old white men that are passionate about what we do. And we're absolutely perfect in our knowledge in every way uh, of course we are not i'm just joking ha 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 but um yeah we gave you guys a lot uh we've gotten i can't tell you hundreds of emails and texts and instant messages and instagram messages and all those you know that devil's seed area of social media that is taken over uh, I've gotten messages. I like social media, by the way. I'm probably one of the biggest social media whores around uh, because I like to promote my stuff that I do in terms of trying to educate. And if anything we're doing with these podcasts is that uh, we're trying to educate and trying to bring back the the lore of our sport, the passion and the journey and the paying your dues and the all the things that our sport has lost over the way. And, uh, you know, Kirk Dieter, a mentor of the soul for me, Kirk, if you're listening, God bless you. Love you. Uh, but, you know, he says, you sometimes, Sapinski, your glass half empty and he's a half, half full guy. I'm a half full guy. But sometimes, you know, I just, I'm, I'm Catholic and I'm ridden with guilt and guilt from those priests and nuns that used to torment me in corporal punishment in grade school. And uh, it was all those nooses, hangings in the gardens of the Blessed Virgin Mary and all that, that you know, just got me so guilt-ridden that I, sometimes I have to go to extremes. But anyway, shut up, Matt. Uh, it's been an interesting week here uh, in Michigan. It's 28 degrees this morning. The first two weeks in April, uh, I, I just did some uh, spay casting schools. The last three days, I posted a, a couple um, of videos of my student, Thomas, from North from Charleston, South Carolina. This man is a spay addict. He wants to be a spay addict. And um, I just enjoyed teaching him for three days. And he's, he was throwing 120, 130 foot bombs after three days. And I was just like, oh my God, this guy was very talented, but that was a good week. Um, it's 28 degrees in the first two weeks in April, it was 80 degrees here for two weeks. And now everything that bloomed is already dying because we've had three frosts the last couple of nights. So we're probably going to, uh, we have a cherry festival in Traverse City, the big cherry fest in Traverse City. Where all the country boys come in, all the country acts come in, all the, you know, Luke Bryant's and them. And uh, Luke Bryant, by the way, is a fly fisherman. So he fishes with Colby Troll down on Mossy Creek. But um, we're probably going to have to borrow cherries from Poland again. Cherry Poland is a cherry capital of the world, uh, like Traverse City. 
And every time we have early frost, we have to go to Poland and get our cherries. So hopefully Poland doesn't have frost, but I think they're having frost two weeks. Uh, I've been watching a lot of Champions League soccer and Europa League soccer, and they've been having it. But our week here has just been cold, and um, we still got a few steelhead in the river, but not many. But I can't wait for the trout to start looking up and taking bugs. They already did that during the early black stonefly hatch. We had a few fish rising to midges the other day. Hendrickson should be popping uh, as we speak. And um, and uh, what else is in the news? Oh, poor Tucker Carlson. We give you our blessings. And I'm sure there are so many people weeping, weeping and weeping for that poor, poor, humble man, Tucker. Uh, so God bless you, Tucker, on your next journey, I'm sure. Um you and the big, the big D, the big Donnie will get a new gig somewhere and you could uh, have a love fest with each other. But other than that, um, uh, we want to also say our prayers, uh, blessings for the people of Ukraine as all as always, um, uh, that war is still going on and we still pretend it's not happening. And, uh, so, um, it is, uh, it is something that, uh, we can't believe is still happening in this world that we are having World War II type violence in, in a modern society. Uh, but anyways, uh, players and blessings for people that are going through hardships in their life, through suffering, through pain, through illnesses that can't be on the trout stream or the steel or salmon stream river. Um, we wish you our best. We say prayers for you. And uh, we are still flying in our drone. And today we have a really cool cat. That's going to be part of our drone. This man is a um, is a very unique gentleman that has a very storied background, and he's going to be part of our EIB broadcasting network, high above the galaxy, uh, looking at new trout and salmon and Atlantic salmon and steelhead rivers to explore. And right now, we're going to be talking about the meat kill, the game. This uh, the meat kill sport. The, the the streamer game has gone to new extremes. Um, it is now a um, an addiction, a passion, a cult. I'd say more of a cult where you get people that just want to throw streamers and big meat and chickens and, and uh, roadkill and whatever you want to call it. But we're going to be spending a couple hours today, at least probably who knows how long, you know, our podcasts are really short and quick. So, you know, just, just kidding. But um, we do devote a lot of time to them and to make sure that all our listeners, which is growing in leaps and bounds that I just, I'm over the moon. I can't believe there's so many people listening to them, but we're trying to bring you knowledge. And I got a gentleman today who is a, a, a plethora of knowledge, especially in the streamer world. He's an author. Uh, our guest is a fanatical streamer tire inventor a commercial fly tire a retired law enforcement peace officer that we thank for his service he is the author of a great masterpiece called chasing shadows and some amazing articles he's written um so without further ado may i introduce he is the chasing shadow sensei of the streamer stripping sequacious addiction the head-banging head honcho that now walks the beat no longer for criminals, but for the hunt for the big beastie brownies that take his meaty metalhead marabou morsels. The one and only Richard Strollis. Welcome, Richard. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. That was a crazy intro. <laughs> you like that one? Yeah, I, you're you're always very eloquent with the words. Um <laughs> I go to thesaurus, you know, thesaurus. Uh, I'm a Polish person. I really don't speak very good English. I, I could do this podcast a lot better in Polish. 
Uh, but right you know, so a thesaurus, a thesaurus is a wonderful thing. You just look for words that rhyme. And uh, so anybody wants some tips and you, you up and coming podcasters out there, just go to a thesaurus and it makes you look intelligent, but I'm really not that intelligent. So Rich, what's going on in your world uh, where you live? Um, what's the weather like? What's the trout fishing like? What have you been up to? Um, well, so I'm over here in Connecticut and uh, I'm a stone's throw from the Farmington River. So it, the lower end that most people don't fish runs right through town where I live. But the trout section is about 10 minutes away. And um, we've had an up and down spring just like you have. Our weather's been all over the place. Uh, we've looked like we were going to have a drought and then we just got a massive influx of rain over the weekend. So We've already been fishing Hendrickson's for about a week and a half and been getting some really nice fish on top. But um, that rain that came in, it, depending on where you are, there was some really heavy cells. So over on the river and north of it got anywhere from two to three and a half inches or so. And the reservoirs are already full. So they're dumping water. Um, here where I live, I got a rain gauge because I'm kind of a rain nerd. I got a garden and all that stuff. So and I like to track it with a lot of the different places I fish, but un unbelievably, we had a little over seven inches of rain where I live. What? Wow. Yeah. You should so send we, some to Pennsylvania. Those people are dying for water. Yeah. I mean, crazy. There's a, there's a brook that runs right through our neighborhood. I live in a circle and there's a small golf course, like a public golf course across the street. And a uh, hot brook runs right through where we live. And it, there's little wild brook trout and stuff in there, but it was so blown out on sunday it was up into the road they had to close some of the roads but wow. it receded quick um changed the fishing on the river so like uh monday i still go out in big water too uh, i went out and i have a few little sections on the river where you can kind of get out of the main get into some side braids and stuff like that and uh, although it was up and off color what well, our topic today what we're talking about the streamer fishing was pretty red hot and uh until they kick the water up even more. But uh, that's another topic we'll talk about later. Um, other than that, it's just, I'm in that chasing uh, my two daughters. I have a high schooler now and a, a middle schooler, and they're both playing all kinds of sports. So hockey season ended with the high schooler. And then the other one's big in soccer. I know you're a soccer fanatic over there yourself. Yeah. Um, and she just picked up lacrosse. So super. That's <laughs> great. Well, like you're a busy seven guy. Oh, seven days a week, you know, and then trying to get my garden going. Gardening is one of my other things I like to do. I do a pretty big vegetable garden every year. So I'm a little commercial fly tire. So you're tying like brain crazy. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I tie on average about 30 to 35,000 flies a year now. Oh, crazy. Yeah. It's not for everybody, but I enjoy it. Um, I've done that now as opposed to guiding. I give you a lot of credit. Um, I think if I still guided, I'd be even more grizzled than I am now. <laughs> yeah, you just got to have good meds, man. Good meds <laughs> is a wonderful thing for guides. I think most guides should go get um, psychiatric evaluations and they would find out that there's a lot of issues that could be cured with modern medicine. So yeah. guys out there, my words of advice, don't read your books. Don't read my books. Just go get good meds and be you'll be in better shape. You got it. That's all I said. Uh, okay. So Rich, when did it all start for you? When did the passion start? When was the, when was that epiphany? When was that a calling that said you're going to be a author and a writer and a fanatical tire and, and all that great stuff that separated you from all this? 
It uh, it started really early. I'm I'm closing in on fifty now, and so it it happened almost forty five years ago. Um, fifty, Jesus Christ! I yeah. <laughs> so I um, it all started with conventional tackle to begin with. Um, I grew up in Western Massachusetts, kind of in the foothills of the Berkshires, and they uh, a small mountain there up off General Knox Road near Russell Pond, close to uh, Westfield River system with a lot of little small streams, like little blue lines on the map. And um, I, my grandmother was the one that first started taking me to the stream. My, my dad was an avid fisherman until my parents decided to start a family and he was a self-employed carpenter. So he was always working and, you know, so my, to provide for the house and my mom was home. So to keep myself out of trouble, my grandmother, when she would come up, she would take me to the stream that was literally I don't know, a quarter mile from the house. And I cut my teeth fishing for, you know, wild brook trout there with light line, like two pound test, ultra light type stuff. Um, and my father had a plethora of fishing stuff down in the basement where his workshop was. And in the rafters, he had an old Fenwick glass fly rod that I used to, for, I think I bugged him about it for probably 10, 15 years. Fenwick, we all started out with Fenwick. Everybody I have in this program starts out with a Fenwick firebot. God bless Fenwick. You know, and um, he he would give me little hits because he knew I was kind of crazy about it. If I wasn't playing baseball or doing whatever, he always I would always be fishing. That was kind of what kept me out of trouble. It just I could never get enough of going to that stream or, you know, once I got a bicycle and my parents allowed me to, I'd do the mile and a half ride down to Russell Pond, which, you know, parents nowadays won't, never let their kids get on a bike and ride that far away. Um, you know, fishing pole in hand and still always, you know, catching the trout that were in there and the bass and everything else. But the brook trout and the trout fishing was really kind of what um, enamored me. And then we used to take, it's kind of interesting how my life has kind of come full circle because I live here in Connecticut as a result of my former job, but all my parents extended family and they grew up in Southern Connecticut. So one of my, I would say, um, more influential people in my life was my, my dad's uncle, Joe, my great uncle, Joe, he was a Korean and world war II vet, huge outdoorsman, avid outdoorsman lived in Monroe, Connecticut. I remember going to uncle Joe and aunt Julia's house and uncle Joe would open up his garage. And I mean, he was, when I say outdoorsman, he hunted, he did everything. He had bird dogs, they had a giant garden. He'd open up his garage and there wasn't a square inch of it that didn't have some sort of fishing equipment, whether it was fly rods or fly gear or spin reels. He um, was such an avid fisherman that and hunter that he had acquired um, access to a lot of places that most people didn't get the opportunity to go to because people would actually, I guess you could loosely say, hire him as a guide. Right. Sure. You know? sure. There were so, a lot of closet guides back then. I got yeah. a lot of rods. Joe, you want to, I know a guy, you got a guy, I got a guy, we got a guy in his name, hire him as a guide and everybody like cash under the table because most guides are all cash under the table. And you know, the IRS is, I don't think the IRS picked up on that one yet about guides, but <laughs> anyways, go ahead. So he, um, uncle Joe, he would always give me little tidbits. He was kind of a sucker for kids, which was kind of cool. Cause he was, a, he was a tough, a tough SOB. Um, I, I, you know, just old school, old school mentality, you know, and um, I can still remember I have, and it was funny because I broke some of this stuff out and I've got it here today. I have one of, this is my father's, the first fly box my dad gave me, God which bless is an, you. Old, an old pairing 
and it's littered with, you know, wet flies and bucktails and things of that nature. And, uh, you know, a couple busted up old muddlers. And then one of the other old boxes that uncle Joe gave me, and this was probably one of the first ones that, cause my, my very first fly caught fish was on a muddler minnow. Yeah. Uh-huh. Not a dry fly, yeah. not okay. a dry fly, which is crazy. Cause I threw dry flies like crazy getting refusals, missing fish. And then lo and behold, I fish a muddler and, you know, I catch my first trout on it. I think at the tender age of like 10. So um, and the rest was history, but I can remember we're going to get into this later, but this one fly right here, which is nothing more than, and the hook is half rusted out. It's an old bucktail. It's red and white and it's got a black head. And if you can kind of see that little yeah. pink optic yeah. eye, I can still remember the story of my dad talking about optics, optics, you know, and, uh, we'll kick into a book later about that. Those flies were kind of like, I think, the beginning of what molded me down this whole path of, you know, fishing these style of flies exclusively. It's really pigeonholed me into what I do. Everybody thinks of my name and it's synonymous with streamers, which is great. I love it. I'm very uh, passionate about it. But there's so much more to trout fishing and I do a whole much bunch more. But I know we're focused on this topic today. So that's kind of how that went. And then, cool. you know, I just any chance I could, it, it really got nuts when I was able to drive. Because then I didn't have to yeah. rely on my mom. To same, drop with, same with me. Mom would drop you off and come and pick you up. And one of my friends pooped his pants one time when we came, put, she came, dropped us off. And I took a friend and he pooped his pants in the car. My wife's like, that kid's never coming back, man. But anyways, that was a true story. We were out fishing a little trout stream and my mother picked us up and she's like, who's that bad boy in the back? He pooped his pants. I says, hey, mom, I can't, I can't vouch for the guy. Anyways, go ahead. What the hell did I come up with that shit? That's it's crazy. So, good. Um, so listen, uh, your, yeah, yours was on that bucktail. My, my first streamer fish was on a uh, Mickey Finn. So yep. the famous Mickey Finn uh, tied by Charles Longvin, Longvin was named for after a bartender in Chicago that slipped Mickeys in drinks. And Mickeys were those little, you know, things that got women in trouble like Bill Cosby did in the room in his hotel. But he slipped those little things to get people, women to take their clothes off. Mickeys, they called them Mickeys. And he named the fly after him. But it was on a tributary of the Cataraugus in upstate in southern tier New York. And I caught a steel at I hooked a steel at a couple of weeks before on a Mickey Finn. That's the only streamer I really had was a Mickey Finn. And uh, I had a whole box of them and I bought them from a tackle guy that was selling minnows and somebody brought him Mickey fins and he didn't know what the hell to do. He gave them to me. He said, Hey kid, you want these goddamn things? I don't know what the hell to do with them. Um, so I came back again to try to find this steelhead on a Mickey fin and I was swinging it by that gravel area where I found those steelhead and, um, and lo and behold, a nice big brown trout came out of nowhere and crushed the Mickey fin. So, I mean, talking big brown trout was like 14 inches, man. It was, for me, that was big at that time. That was huge. Yep. Um, so yeah, so that was my first experience. So let's um so let's talk about the streamer. Let's start off with the streamer. We're gonna talk about evolution. We're gonna get into that. But right now, the streamer gig is now a total fascination about motion without movement, about materials, about putting streamers in flow tanks and watching the current in flow tanks, watch how the materials move and and um, the evolution has just gone crazy. Um, and and one thing I like about streamer, and, and you know, I remember in the eighties when I was in England fishing the test in the itch, and I went into the Orvis shop in Stockbridge, and and I looked at the Orvis catalog, and they and they had a section of dry flies, wet flies, 
and nymphs, and then they had lures. And lures were streamers, and they called them lures. And that was a lure in England. And um, But I think I'm fascinated by the kill and the take acceptance. And people always ask me, what's your favorite type of fishing? And I say, I love dry fly fishing because I watch the fish come to take the fly and I have to present it properly. And if they make the right decision and I match the hatch and I, all the shit that we talked about in the Catskill dynasty that we went in depth about rise forms and everything. Uh, I'm fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by the wet fly swing when a fish has to move to take a soft tackle or, a, or my wiggle nymphs, my Isonychia wiggle nymphs or things of that nature. They have to move to take it. And I'm fascinated by the streamer bite because a fish has to make a concerted effort to go and attack it. And space swinging is I'm fascinated with because the fish has got to move to take it. Um, your own your own nymphing, I'm not that fascinated because it's almost like stuffing. Sorry, Euro guys, it's great stuff, and I do do it occasionally, but I'm not a big nymphing guy. And um, I do like one form of nymphing is Sawyer nymphing, the induced take, the the rising of the fly before it comes to the fish, so the fish has to move up to take an emerging, ascending insect in that Sawyer's induced take and lichen ring lift. Uh, so yeah, I mean it's what what turns your buttons, but um, I think the the streamer game is the ultimate sport, and it's all about sport, and and you know. I think it comes down to that. And, you know, the evolution of the streamer, they're sick. You know, everybody's like, look at this, dude. Look at this. Look at how sick this thing. Look at how swimming. Look at it. And they put them in their flow tanks and they throw them on Instagram and plus, and, you know, the kill, the movement that triggers the prey. We're fascinated about how our meat swims. Why are we taking, you know, we're trying to all imitate Rapalas, man. That's that's our goal. How the game changer is, is a jointed Rapala. Um, that chocolate's game changer. It's a beautiful fly. It's, it's, it's an amazing that... Our, our fly swims so much better. We've come a long way from the deer hair bucktail era. Um, how's your take on that whole thing, Rich? Yeah, I think it's really evolved a lot. And I think, you know, there's obvious people who've contributed to that. You mentioned one of them. You know, we obviously all defer to like Kelly with a lot of the stuff he's done. But I think the idea of movement, and I also think, what changed because if you look at a lot of these bucktails and these old flies that we fished, I mean, you know, a big, a big streamer back in the day was only what an inch or two long. And now the average fly that I'm fishing is right here for trout. So you're talking four inches to one. So it's almost a four to one size ratio, you know, yeah. and, and that's not all the, all the time, but a majority of the time, you know, and it's, it's a mentality, but I think, there's, there's so many other things that have gone on now too. We recognize that now you, you can put movement into things by articulating them. And listen, our articulating flies has been around for quite a long time. Um, I know you're familiar with that. I know Kelly even mentions, he's like, I'm not the guy that, that came up with articulating flies. He goes, they've been doing this. I mean, you can go back into Carrie Stevens time. They were using trailer hooks for trolling flies and tandems and things of that nature. You talk about wiggle nymphs and things of that nature. That, that That's all just something that we've kind of adapted. Um, I think the quality of the materials that we have at our disposal has exponentially gotten better between naturals and synthetics, which helps. So, I mean, you take a neck, an old neck back in the day, you'd be lucky if you could get a quarter of those feathers off that. That would be primo, prime, you know. They might have some or super stiff stems on them. They might not move as much. Uh, they might have lots of damage to it. Now, the way they're engineering these feathers, you can have an entire saddle or a cape that pretty much the entire thing is usable. 
So, right. and the links, you know, you now you look at you, if you start getting into anything other than trout fishing, because streamer stuff transgresses just trout. It's one of those angles of fishing that goes into every aspect, salt water, fresh water. I mean, I, I would say if you're, I think that this style of fishing is a heck of a lot more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess you could say it's more well-rounded across the board if you're a multi-species angler, because a lot of places you go, you're going to be fishing these style of flies. And I, I think what gets me all jazzed up about it, not just much to eat and the, the creativity you can have at the vice, but I, what I like about fishing streamers um, is I'm actually casting fly line. Um, and it brings me back to what I got into this. I was enamored by that as a kid, you know, um, it's that and dry fly fishing are the two aspects of the sport where you're still physically casting a fly line, you know? Yeah. So, um, oh, you could, yeah, you, you are casting a fly line, you know, but there's weighted flies, but we're not, we're not doing monofilament streamer yet. No. Well, <laughs> People Sorry, are. guys. I'm not picking on your own nymphers. I apologize. I'm not picking on people you. are. You know, it has a place, but you know, I, I um I think as you get older too, I mean, I'm one of those guys where I, I don't really care how you fish as long as you know you're doing it ethically and you're having fun. Um, but I think as you get older and you look at this sport, especially you and I have talked about this before, not to digress, but I think the sport is losing its face and its identity because all these new techniques now it's turned into, I mean, I had this conversation with Kelly the other day. It's more about catching and not about fishing and learning a specific art. So, you know, when we can get back out of that phase, which, you know, big part of that, no offense to the comp guys, that's kind of come where that's, that's kind of come into play. It's all about numbers, 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 who's going to catch the most. And I think there's a demographic of anglers that are at that point in their fishing career. And there's a demographic that are beyond it. And, you know, when you get past it, some people don't, but, you know, I, what drew me to all this was there, there's something about casting a fly line. It's a challenge, right? And then you have it, same thing with fish and dries. There's a multitude of challenges that come into play when you're trying to present a dry fly to a rising fish. And it's the same kind of uh, aspect with streamer fishing, you know? Yeah. So it's the take and the kill. So the sporting adventure is the take and the kill. So the fish has to make a conscious effort. You are a sporting gentleman, you are offering them something. He has to make the decision. The fish has to make a decision to take your fly. And therein lies the sport. Therein lies the, the, the chase. And it's called the sporting gentleman and lady. Um, that's my take on the whole thing. Um, but anyways, let's, you know, deer hair, bucktail, marabou feathers, still relevant, schlopping, saddle hackles, ostrich hurl. Um, and now we're getting into synthetics. You know, Greg Senio wrote a book, Fusion Fly Tying, and Greg's mainly, you know, does a lot of, Greg's a good friend of mine. I wrote the a forward for that book. Mm -hmm. You know, the materials he came up with hairline are just amazing. A lot of those materials and and Greg, you know, does a lot with the streamer and the Atlantic salmon gig, but streamer, I mean, excuse me, the um, intruder game for, for steelhead, steelhead alley. And those flies catch Atlantic salmon, landlocked Atlantics catch big browns for me. And, you know, if you take all that together, what's going on today and then what you did, you know, with, 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 with your combination of materials and your metal heads, your sculpting heads and, um, it's so far, far advanced from what the early beginnings. And I, let's go back to those early beginnings to tie. I mean, to me, a lot of those early beginnings started with Preston Jennings. Um, 
Jennings was like uh, the New York master of trying to get into color and vibrant colors. His Iris and his Lord Iris streamers were loaded with Jock Scott colors. And, um, and they were, you know, more along the lines of like salmon feather wing tradition imitations and his streamers were meant to catch trout, but more so aimed towards that Atlantic salmon school. And then, you know, to me, and I want you to talk about this a little bit is, is what, um, to me, what really defined um, the school of, 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 of streamer fishing and, and sort of laid out the design was the Herb Welsh, the Carrie Stevens, the black ghost, the gray ghost, the age of tinsel bodies, tails of yellow and orange hackle fibers and golden pheasant and red goose shoulders and saddle hackles and peacock curl and Alcock's 2018, 2011 hooks and jungle cock. That, that sort of laid out the design in a way for streamers. what do you think, Rich? 100%. I mean, a lot of that has come not too far from where I grew up. Um, I, I have a, I, I spent a lot of time in Maine. I, I'm a kind of a historian kind of buff like you when it comes to fishing. Uh, I probably have a four bookcase, uh, four bookcases of fishing books alone. And a lot from that whole Rangeley area, because it's real dear to me because I was always fascinated with those style of streamers growing up as a kid, because those were kind of the bigger ones. Any of the bigger platform streamers you find would typically be on some of those longer six to 10 X hooks that were originated from the Rangeley area. Um, I think what's changed with that, but I think, I think to answer your question, I think even that was well over a hundred years ago. Now um, they understood the importance of, you know, texture and color and different types of colors um, to represent whatever kind of query they were trying to chase or bait fish. They might have loosely been trying to imitate because they recognized even back then that, you know, not everything is a solid color scheme. I mean, I know you recently had, had a podcast with, um, Al Couchy about spectrumized dubbing and all that stuff and how it, you know, revolutionized emergers and dry flies. It's kind right. of the same thing with streamers, I think, but it, yep. I think it's taken now we recognize it on a grander scale. We have more things at our disposal, you know, back to the hooks. I mean, most streamers were tied on those longer hooks with shorter gaps. And, you know, Kelly's talked about this. We all have, um, you know, those longer streamers on bigger fish provided a problem. You know, um, when you hook a big fish on a, a streamer or a hook that's got an extensively long shank on it, there's a probability that that's going to bend out, right? So now, if you look at a lot of the designs we have, and he influenced a lot of it, and all the people that were working with him on that at that time, you know, the shorter shank hooks, which that comes back from the saltwater. I mean, there's a lot of the saltwater realm. A lot of the saltwater stuff has kind of help the freshwater streamer side of things and vice versa. So there, and we've borrowed a lot from, you talked about the Rapala earlier. I mean, it's a deadly action on a lure and a lot of people have tried to replicate that through flies. So, you know, you, you take now you take, you know, I mean, a lot of the flies that I tie for people and fish myself, I, you know, I, I say this, I've said this in my book myself, you know, I, you know, solid colored patterns work. They have a time and a place, but I think, you're better served by having things with multicolors, multi-textures, have some dimension to them. And I think where things have changed in the last hundred years in streamer design, more so in the last 40 years, is now we have the ability to make patterns that have more depth, right? They're more dimensional. 
Because if you really take and you look at some of those old feather wing flies, with the exception of the muddler, which has a bigger spun head on it, most of them are, are very flat. If you look at them, they have very, very little um, size to them. So, you know, Gary Borger talked about this before, the acoustic footprint with streamers, you know, and with brown trout, brown trout, they're like a lot of your predators, you know, they feel vibrations and whatnot. So some of those flies in, under certain circumstances might work really, really well. But when you're dealing with higher dirty water, sometimes you might need something that's going to have more of a footprint. I mean, Kelly talks about Hertz wavelengths and pushing waves through the water. Fish key in on that with their lateral line. So I think we have an ability now with a lot of the materials and the way that we're tying these flies to really hit in a lot of that stuff, which is, um, you know, helps the streamer angler become more proficient. So, and it's fun to tie this stuff. You know, it's a little different than, I mean, I tie so many different flies, which is the beauty of what I do. I'll tie 28s all the way up to six aughts, you know, um, on any given week. So, you know, the bigger flies, they take a little bit used, uh, used to getting proportions and stuff, but they're fun. They're funner platforms for me anyway, because you can really add in all different kinds of layers of color and texture and depth to those fly patterns. Yeah, absolutely. Rich, um, you know, you hit on something about uh, vibration. I want to get into later in the thing about, and I'm going to talk about one, one other facet that, and then we're going to get into brown trout because brown trout, the, the brown trout thing, when I wrote my Atlantic, my brown trout Atlantic Salmon Nexus book, um, it really opened my eyes when I, I you know, writing three pages, 300 pages and like doing so much research and stuff, the more I realized that the poster child of the poster child of the new streamer bite and, and the poster child really of this new streamer bite is the big trudosaurus brown trout, the donkey, the beast. Um, this this guy is the guy that's on the hunt. And yes, you know, we're going to get into this also about brook trout and rainbow trout and bull trout and marble trout and other trout. But if you really wanted to look at that, that fish is the poster child for what we chase, whether it's where you are, you know, whether you're in the Catskills of Farmington, the, the Michigan, the, the, the Sable, the, the White River, the Arkansas, the Holston, wherever you're going to chase big donkeys, um, that thing came about in Montana and where Kelly is and, you know, that stuff, we're going to get into that. But I think that's the poster child. Articulation changed everything, and you summed it right up. Um, and that first articulation really came a lot from nymphing. And and my mentor, Carl Richards, had the wiggle nymphs and stuff, and that sort of gave the ideas. What's your thoughts on articulation? Where did it come from for you? Um, For me, I didn't really recognize it until probably I was just getting out of college going into my early twenties. That's when, and a lot of people can say the same thing the first articulated streamers I fished were gallop patterns. I mean, like, you know, he's changed the name on it a thousand times, but it's his articulated zoo cougar. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, I think he calls it a heifer groomer or whatever. Now that, that was the fly that really changed a lot of things for me. Um, you know, the original zoo cougar, I mean, th those two flies are probably the ones that impacted the way I tie how and how I fish streamers and what I'm looking for when I'm building a streamer pattern. Um, the beauty of the articulation with uh, these streamers is you can take materials now that have extreme limitations in length and you can make um, with some creativity, you can make flies that are going to move. You can almost double the movement in some materials 
and also add length to them. So, you know, if you look at a lot of the articulated flies that we have, if you were to try and tie the same fly in a single hook version and make it the same length, you have limiting factors with feathers. You might have limiting factors with say marabou. It could be fox hair. It could be bucktail, right? But now if you add a second section into it, you can build your own taper out of those same materials, use the same, same length material, maybe trim it down or whatever so that you can build your taper. And you're also going to get that swimming motion out of it, that undulation, which is enticing to fish. So I mm -hmm. think that is, you know, drastically changed the game. And then you can go all the way to the level of what Blaine's done with, you know, multiple shanked section flies and it's, you know, the sky's kind of the limit. So you've, you can basically add movement to materials or even more movement to materials that have movement or add movement to materials that don't necessarily have a lot just by articulating something. Yeah, you know? exactly. And, um, it's interesting. A lot of this stuff came from Michigan and, uh, you know, Kelly was a disciple of, of what we had with Carl Richards and, and Ernie Schwebert was a Michigan guy and Hemingway was a Michigan guy. And, you know, it's not all Pennsylvania and New York guys, just letting you know, uh, Michigan was a place you come to Michigan a lot. We'll talk about that, but, um, yep. our rivers started this whole thing. And, you know, the, the mother minnow was the, the, the big, epiphany was the bible of this whole game it it started that whole scalp the sculpin craze everything is a sculpin craze now is that a sculpin you're fishing sculpin you know when i grew up nobody heard of sculpins you heard of bucktails you heard of black dose black nose black dose um you know uh dace uh blah 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 mickey fins you know we had bucktails that's we fished and everything was modeled off that carrie stevens you know herb welsh school but the muddler minnow with the deer head don gapen nipagon big big brook trout world record you know the big massive fish um uh it it was the it was a turning point because it started a new craze of of the v-shape formation of what we're trying to do now with whether it's your metal heads it's whether it's this which the, what kelly did with zuku what everybody started to do was that that head but what i think and you know what i think really took that to a new level was ed shank sculpins and ed shank was that first guy and that my he, he was a mentor of mine he uh i fished with him so much on the latorta and by bonnie brook and all over the place when i was in dc for that 10 years with my epiphany with spring creeks but shank sculpins um were like the bomb deer hair you had a body of of like chenille, and then you had marabou tail, and that was the gig. It was a V-shaped thing, pushed water. He always said that it was the vibrations of the deer hair going through the water and pushing the bubbles and making that happen. And and um, that was that was the big gig. And then we we had the, you know we had the uh, matuka from New Zealand, parabell rabbit strips, creating undulations lefties deceivers you know clouser minnows that two-tone body dark on top lighter on the bottom give me your take on all this stuff that we just uh chatted about I mean, it's all you know it's all relevant even today so that's the cool thing with fly fishing i say this i, I tie flies for a living right and i tell guys you always get the guys hey what's the hot fly what's the hot fly and i'm like i from a guy who ties flies for a living i'll be the first one to tell you that it's not so much the fly it's the person at the end of the cork first and foremost, right? And your ability to present it. But all that old stuff, it's kind of nice to see it coming back because it's still relevant today. It all works. And I think all those little flies that you just discussed were building blocks to a lot of the things that you see now. You know, you talk about shank sculpin. Yeah, the wedge head there 
And the shape of that body, which sends waves through the water, is what evolved into what some of the, the flies that Kelly tied, some of the other bigger streamers we see now. They don't necessarily all have to be shaped out of deer hair either. There's other things we can use. We can use wool. You know, I've seen sections of foam. There's a, a, a litany of different things. And it all, what it does is it, it starts to build that three-dimensional shape of a fly, right, in your streamers, number one. And then the other thing with the color. So you go back to, if you look at the Klauser minnow, the Klauser minnow is probably one of the first uh, representations that we know today um, of a jig style streamer, you know? So you have some weight on there, it inverts, it can ride hook up. It's, you know, I, I'm, I'm of the mindset, my, I prescribe more to, although some of the flies that I tie loosely might represent some sort of forage or food base, I'm more of the mindset, I'm looking for a specific action out of the fly that I'm tying and then what I'm trying to utilize. So the Klauser is one perfect example. You talk about the sculpins that I tie. It's the same thing, just on a bigger scale. You have that vertical up and down action. It's not so much that that flies fish directly on the bottom, because a lot of times it gets eaten midway through the water column or on the drop. But when you retrieve it, it's moving up and down through the water column on top of sending out some of those shock weights because of the broader profile. Back to that, the Deceiver and the Klauser, you know, two-tone colors. I mean, I'm a, I will spend the time on a lot of the flies that I tie for myself um, by blending and mixing different colors, whether it's through underbody things, uh, it could be flashes, it could be synthetics, even with deer hair. A lot of the deer hair flies that I tie, I mean, I, I love double deceivers. I tie them a lot smaller than most guys do for around here. That's four right. inch size is what I fish the most. If you were really to take a look at that, Matt, that's not just brown over orange. There's yep. six different colors of bucktail in there. Oh yeah. It's all blended by hand. You know, you take your three colors for the top and you pull them out and you blend them in a hand, mix them up, pull them apart, go through there. So I think, you know, we're taking what Lefty and Bob Clouser did on the most basic level with their, hey, dark on top, light on the bottom. And now we're having the ability, guys are getting creative. They're doing different things. You know, you can add different feathers in there. There's two sets of feathers which gives you a different variegated color look to it. I don't necessarily 100% believe that the fish are fully into that. It pleases us as well. I think you're going to have a little more confidence fishing something that, you know, catches your eye as well too, which is a whole other topic we can get into. But, you know, it it's all those things that we just talked about drastically influenced where we are today, you know? And I also think there was a time, geez, 10, 15 years ago, because this streamer stuff got really big like late nineties, two thousands, when that Kelly's book and Bob's book came out, that's yeah. where it really opened my eyes to a lot that of was stuff. A total evolution epiphany right there. hundred percent. I mean, I, I think out of all, and not to not, I think there's a ton of great books that have come out, but for this particular topic, that book changed so much. Yeah. I know it did yeah. for me. Um, and the way we look at things. And I, I also see there was a progression. So a steady progression to see how big we could go with flies for trout. Right. And, you know, you always hear that adage. It drives me nuts when I hear it, go big or go home. And I, I, although the streamers I fish are bigger on average, even today to what most average trout anglers feel comfortable throwing. I don't, I have a very, I wouldn't say it's specific, but there's definitely a window of my size windows of what I fish on a regular basis under most conditions. And there's definitely some that I see people that are tying and fishing that 
are way outside that range. Right. And I think that whole go big or go home thing is in the trout world per se, unless you're on a specific watershed, there's a few watersheds where you can get away with it. I think the average size is you, you got to really kind of scale that back, but that all comes to, if we get into fishing tactics and stuff of like kind of knowing your water, devising a plan. And if something's not working, you change it. Right. Amen. But, Amen, brother. You're right on. You know, I remember, I remember I got my first scalp. And so when I was fishing these limestone screen creeks, I wrote a big article. Uh, first, one of my first articles, big limestone trout in five fisherman magazine, late eighties or something. And I was addicted to, I got addicted to sculpting fishing and I, I had a 10 foot five weight Orvis graphite rod I got for that sculpting. Cause I used to do a lot of dapping under these undercut banks and all these like little spring creeks were 10, 15 feet wide, 20 feet wide. And you were dapping and you put a couple split shots above a, of a shank sculpting. And um, that was the gig. And I remember I got turned on to him. Um, Cause I used to go down and fish Mossy Creek, Colby Tro's water down in, in, uh, in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And um, uh, I stopped into Harry Murray's shop. Harry Murray, the famous uh, uh, guy in, in in Murray's Fly Shop in in uh, Edinburgh, Virginia, and uh, I uh, came in and he, he and this is a quote I have in my from my Nexus book. He says he said to me, "quote You have to have some of these these black and white black and white shank sculpins. Mossy Browns are gulping these like pulled pork on a bun, son." And um, he he dumped a few of them in my hand, which of course I immediately bought since I was always I always said because Harry told me to do it. I mean I bought. Harry was selling me 10 foot four weight G series, uh, Scott rods and nine foot two weight rods and anything that Harry told me to do. And, and in the water, the marabou tails uh, and the spun head had a, the exact silhouette of a sculpin, which was like a large, when, when a large killer Trudosaurus Brown could not exor, uh, ignore. And I fished them on Mossy and all the deep channels and undercut banks below the little cattle crossing bridges with, with deadly efficiency, man. It was it changed my game and I was catching more big Browns. And a lot of time it was just crawling up on your, on your elbows and your knees and getting behind an undercut bank where, you know, there was an address there that somebody was living in that condo because you, you moved them once or twice. So you were just hunting addresses. You were just, you were shopping. You were, you were doing more hunting and watching and sitting in places and waiting for this beast to come out. And, you know, you know, um, Johnson, uh, your boy Bjorn Johnson, that wrote the introduction, the famous brown trout doctor that wrote the uh, the evolution of brown trout and Atlantic salmon uh, habitat as a template. Um, that big monster um, book from uh, you know from the the press, um, the university press, and he he always said that brown trout were sit and wait predators. And we're going to talk a little bit about this, uh, but these guys that hunt, they sort of like sit wait and stalk and pounce predators and they they take advantage of these 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 fulcrum points these these intercept points and we're going to get into that i'm getting a little above myself but that sculpting did change and then you had dave whitlock sculpin then you started on the west coast they started tying steelhead sculpins um sculpins was a new word and, and it didn't exist before when i was a kid nobody heard the word sculpin and then of course you had russell blessing with his woolly worm was the predecessor to the woolly bugger and and that whole bugger, marabou, a, a body, chenille body, you know, hackle, that was the design. And then sculpin combination formed that 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 um, shank sculpin. Um, your thoughts on that, Rich? Well, I mean, to the bugger, I mean, you could probably argue in our lifetime the woolly bugger might be one of the 
all time, even though it's an extremely basic fly, it might be one of the best all time all around fish catchers, right? I mean, you can Absolutely. utilize that in a multitude of different ways. There's probably not a wrong way to fish that fly, to be quite honest with you, you know, but the, uh, you know, and I'm a, people who listen best to worm it, it's the best worm imitation, right? I mean, it's yeah. a night crawler. I mean, could bugger. Be a, a bugger could be a damselfly, it could be a crane fly larva, it could be a leech, who knows, right? It could be right. taken as a lot of things. I, and I think, you know, not not to, you know, I, guys get on me because I, I get ranty sometimes with stuff, but I, I rant on certain words just kind of strike a nerve with me. And I hear this a lot in the, in the time world with platforms, right? Where, you know, you use this platform, whatever, I, you know. Rant, I'm, I'm we love the it. rant. Hollowed Waters is about the rant. We are, we are two you old know, white dudes. You're over 50. So you are now in the old white dude category. So the, uh, the Wooly Booger. There. The woolly booger platform, if you were to look at it, is extrapolated and used in a lot of different designs. I mean, some of uh, Kelly's patterns, like the dungeon, the butt monkey, the bodies are very similar. It's a very similar streamlined approach. The headbanger I tie, if you were to break it down in essence, I mean, it's more or less a few additions to a woolly booger style platform. So it works. You know, we've added it. I think that's kind of one of the things that's happened with with tying, too, is we're, we're finding easier ways to make things better. But... You know, all that stuff, it's, you, you hit on it with any of those things with the, like the woolly bugger, those sculpins, any of those patterns, they all still work today. And, you know, I, I think with streamer fishing for some of the people who are a little apprehensive to delve into this because they're really wrapped around the axle with matching hatches and, you know, that streamer thing looks kind of cool and maybe I want to get into it, but I don't know what to do. They get a little like, you know, Flies are bigger. I don't know where to start, how to fish them. You could start out with just fishing that. Yeah. A woolly bugger. It's a great worm imitation. It's a worm imitation. And I, I used to chuck night crawlers on my Fenwick rod and my Fluger reels when my dad wasn't watching me because he was a diehard fly fisherman. And one day he caught me and man, I got hell, man. I he he wouldn't talk to me for weeks. I was a I was treated like a thief, like a criminal, because I was dunking crawlers on my in the high water on my freaking um, Fenwick rod, but God, we're, we're past that stage. But yeah, I mean, it, it's, you come, you combine all this. So we started this whole thing off. We got so much more to cover, but um, we, it's the synthesis of those elements that came in. If you look at that, we've, we've touched on that synthesis and it all comes back to, do we have a candidate that's willing to take this. So today we have candidates. We have bass is huge streamer, musky, um, you know, trout, of course, the brown trout. Again, I go back to the brown trout because the brown trout did change everything. And if you look at anybody that read a book or writes an article about streamer fishing or writes a book about streamer fishing or does this about, it's always that big brown trout on the cover with a big articulated fly. And that's it because this is, this guy is the poster child. And, and, and in my Nexus book, the kill, the fish that is the king of kill, it's the king of kill because it is the most deceptive little bastard that ever swam waters. Cause it could go from, from size 28 midges the sipping trichos to eating big hexagenias and, and green drakes, and then taking something in his mouth that's the size of 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 your of your piano and and try to ingest it. And how many times we've caught brown trout with tails of other fish sticking out? I caught a big brown, um, we call him fat bastard on the Muskegon that had a <laughs> about a ten inch bluegill stuck in his throat. And the scales were stuck so far down his throat and, the, and the, the tail was sticking out that we performed a, um, 
esophagotomy out of this fish and we took the pliers and put pinched the pinched the top of the scales down uh, of the fins and got the fish out of there and he we 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 kissed it and it swam away and it actually survived so that you fish know, owes us what's funny and not to cut you off but you you made me you brought something to my attention that I completely missed I slipped my mind but it made reminded me of it you know the brown trout you I remember as a kid, even my father would always talk about big browns, big browns. We the river I grew up fishing on the Westfield, you know, he he I can still see it to this day. My uncle Eddie went there with my dad. My dad used to go there and fish all the time after work. And he used to always get he would call bigger browns, like 16, 18 inches. And he always remembered this one rock in this one pool where there's this big elusive one. And of course he takes my uncle Eddie there and he catches uncle it. Uncle Eddie, oh my god. And it god, was 24 and a half inches long, right? And of course, Uncle Eddie bonks it and has it mounted, whatever. But you know, back to what you were saying, those big fish too, those those bigger trout, a lot of them will still eat bugs too, you know. And yeah. there's certain things that happen, and I we will probably get into this later. It's changes in what's going on in your environment that's going to maybe make stack the deck in your favor where that streamer option, if you're a guy that's into options or you just want to go all in, where those streamer options are going to tilt tilt the deck more towards you and having a higher probability of success, you know, and it could be weather, it could be water, influx of water. If we get a chance, remind me, uh, I was talking in the beginning when you asked me how things were here, there was an instance that happened on Monday which it might be really good for the listeners to think about of what transpired on the water and how the fishing changed and how it was good and how it shut off. And I think those are things that come into play with streamer fishing that, you know, you could go out there. I had a guy not to get sidetracked again, a good, a good guy who bought flies for me and came up to me at one of the shows a few years ago. Super nice dude, Max, Max, if you're listening, you'll hear this. He's like, Hey man, I love your bugs. I love your streamers. Love your videos. I can't buy a fish on a streamer, Rich. I'm like, well, we need to change that. So finally, this past fall, he had a chance to come out and we were able to kind of connect the dots for him. And he got to witness, unbeknownst to him, of how those changes can positively and negatively affect the level of fishing. Like you said, that instance where you're on that stream fishing those sculpins and, hey, boom, I was just bagging fish after after fish. It can be a numbers game some days, you know, so. Yeah. If you, what I do is, and I've heard Tommy talk to you about this when you interviewed him and I'm like, Oh, Tommy's letting, like Joey would say, Oh, you're letting something out of the bag, but you're really not, yeah. you know, it's a, it's, this is good stuff because it, it, when you get somebody to experience some of the things we're talking about, you'll kind of get an understanding as to why you become so obsessed with fishing this way. Cause when you have a day where you get to see what fish will do and they don't behave like they normally do, it's Amen. I live my life around that. Amen. I my fishing. Amen to you for saying that. And no. that's exactly because, you know, Joey still got the, that's Shabayos. If you're listening, you're going to listen to this. I know, but you still got that New York. I can't tell it. I can't tell. See, I can't <laughs> let the cat out of the bag. Oh shit. Don't let them son of a bitches find out from Jersey. They'll screw it all up. You know, <laughs> that, that whole mentality and Joe, I could see in Joe, it, it's that New York, you know, don't, don't, don't let them know about this. Oh, geez, I'm letting the cat out of the bag. Oh, yeah, and it's true. But you know what we're trolling for, man? I'm going to tell you what we're trolling for. We're trolling for apostles. We're trolling for disciples that are going to come and bite the passion, live it, and protect the fish, worship the fish, not themselves. That's why Absolutely. I'm really down on all this narcissism that we have today in fly fishing about posting 10,000 pictures of your stupid ass face on top of things. We're done with that, okay? We're looking for people that are going to be disciples, 
for the fish. And that's what we're trolling for. So if we're trolling for anything, that's what we're doing. So I just got on my soapbox and I'm stepping down because I need <laughs> to shut my mouth. Um, but anyways, uh, that's it right there. We're going to take a break. Uh, we got so much to cover. We have, you just glossed over the beginning of this, but um, we're going to come back and we got a lot to talk about and going into different schools and high water and presentations. Oh God, this is going to be a long one. So um, we will be right back. We are with Rich Strollers and we are talking the slinging meat, the steelhead, excuse me, the steelhead. I'm sorry. I got my S's combined. Slinging meat, the savage streamer, sequacious addiction. We will be right back. Hello listeners, this is Caleb, editor and producer of the Hallowed Waters Journal podcast. This episode and all of season three of the Hallowed Waters Journal podcast features music by Dutch EDM artist Arpo. You can find them on Instagram at Arpo Music and find their music on all major streaming platforms. Our thanks to Arpo for the use of their song Floating and for their support of the Hallowed Waters Journal. Hello, listeners. As publisher of Hollowed Waters Journal, I'm really proud to bring you this magazine that we've put together and we've been going really strong for the last year. Uh, our accolade winning and amazing in-depth issues full of sumptuous photography, fly patterns and extensive tactical information can be purchased individually now in our archive series for you to read and reread over and over. We treat each topic and article as a mini Bible on the subject that you will explore with your passion and journey for trout, salmon, and steelhead fly fishing. And we'll hopefully rethink your relationship with these fish and make you fly addicted for life. Northern Magazine has the content and depth as Hollowed Waters Journal. Find out what you've been missing and come to hollowedwaters.com today and subscribe. We are talking the slinging streamer magnificence of this sequacious addiction with Rich Strollis. And, um, you know, I'm going to go back to, you know, I always use, I talk about brown trout being the 
the poster child of, of this whole game. And, you know, we always talk about the adoration of these big, you know, the king of kill, Brown Trout. And I'm going to just do a, a quick quote out of my Brown Trout Nexus book um, about their their whole their whole being and what they are. And um, uh, I quote, the more common aquatic vertebrate prey, pelagic and benthic baitfish, smaller trout, and other smaller fish of, of predaceous edible delights that a carnivorous leviathan brown trout love to eat, shares a darker side, a gastronomical dimension. To pounce like a tiger in weight is the other more violent side of the sometimes introspective truda that is often labeled as a sit and wait predator as Salmo doctors Bjorn and Nina Janssen have described in their Bible. This cautious waiting and discriminatory predator behavior is more characteristic brown trout hunting attribute. But when, but what we are about to unleash here can give one creepy chills. In the deceptive concealment mode, the pounce, kill, hide, digest phase, they are highly skilled at ambushing prey both by day and especially nocturnally. With a high degree of efficiency, a large carnivorous truda can be specific ambush niches or hunt in packs to accomplish the killer task of eating smaller fish. But but mice, voles, rodents, snakes, small birds, I mean, I, anything's happened. Um, with carnivorous terrestrial delectable items have been ingested and known to be eaten by large brown trout from all parts of the globe. From the Catskill Mountains to, to, to English chalk streams to Kenya to Africa, um, they have a savage and thirsty fashion. And the old trout bum saying a brown trout will eat anything that doesn't eat it can now be more appropriately delivered in this chapter. So I mean, basically what I'm getting to is that this king of the kill has decided the way we tie our flies and, um, and, and, you know, now we're mousing now we're we're doing all kinds of stuff and we're leeching and we're, you know, we're doing things of that nature, which is, which is, you know, showing uh, the way to, to, to the way they respond to these things. But, you know, I always say that the brown trout is the king, but what about chars? What about brook trout? What about bull trout? What about marble trout? Um, you know, um, what's your experience with them? I know brook trout are big, big eaters of flesh. And you always think of brook trout and you always think of a white, something white, a white type of minnow or a white, white pattern. Uh, what's your experience with the above with those uh, other species, Rich? Well, I've spent a lot of time as a kid fishing in smaller brook trout streams. And then as I got older, I spent a great deal of time up in the Rangeley section of Maine and uh, with a, a emphasis on the Magalloway and the Rapid Rivers and the Androscoggin. Uh, the Rapid River more so for bigger brook trout than the other two. And they're, they're very similar in nature to um, brown trout. They might take up different lies um, per se, but they are excellent um, fish to chase on streamers, in my opinion. Um, a lot of the times I used to go up into uh, Maine every end of every April for a, a while there. I have a close friend of the family. God, he's getting up there now, but he owns two cabins um, on Lake Umbegog, very, very close to the um, – the estuary of the rapid by Cedar Stump. I think he's about maybe, I don't know, three quarters to a mile downstream, right at the precipice of the lake. And uh, he would motor me up there, you know, right after ice out. Cause the one thing with brook trout is they're less tolerant of warmer water. So they need cold water, right? So early season, those fish would be in every place you would expect them to be. And, you know, when I used to go there and fish, 
I would always start my outings out because mixed in with those brook trout were uh, landlocked salmon. So, and those are a lot of fun too, but uh, everything, same thing, everything that, you know, I do fishing for brown trout with streamers would apply to brook trout. And they're the same thing. Very, very voracious hitters. Um, they'll strike their prey if they're big enough. Sometimes they'll do some of the same things that you'll see with the brown. They might stun it, wait for it to kind of float downstream, do things of that nature. Um, you know, when you look to that whole neck of the woods um, in the Rangeley areas, a lot of those patterns that we talked about earlier were all originated up there for brook trout. You know, all the Kerry Stevens patterns, you know, uh, uh, Welch's pattern, the black ghost, you know, uh, the gray ghost any of that other stuff, you know, the smelt patterns. So, you know, it, it all kind of extrapolates with that, you know, bull trout, for example, bull trout are same thing. They get very, very big and they become a lot of times very much predaceous feeders primarily. And um, they, what I found is depending on where they are, we had a chance to catch a few last year bycatch out in Montana when we were out there and, um, you know, they take up different positions in the water column. A lot of times they're, you know, most of the bigger uh, bull trout that we saw, even when we weren't even fishing for them, you could see them in, up uh, high in some of the areas that we stood and kind of peered into some of that crystal clear water. They took up ambush positions, you know, um, very, very catchable. And um, same thing, they're, they're one of the few trout that I've gone for where, you know, I, oftentimes I feel like, I don't know what the limit of the size of the fly is that they'll eat, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's amazing. It truly is. You know, I, and I, I have the ability on, it's really cool. And, and some people think I'm nuts because, you know, when you're passionate about stuff, I guess you could look at it that way. When you tie so many flies, like I do, I, I have the ability to live vicariously through a lot of people around the planet with the patterns that I tie for them and send them on some of their trips. And one of the trips that, I get a lot of stuff that I always love listening to or, you know, to tie a lot of predator flies for all different species aside from trout, but guys that go out to like the Pacific Northwest uh, up in Canada, specifically targeting bull trout and some right. of the stories they tell me about, you know, having them chase a fly right almost to their feet and still eat it. You know, uh, that's just exciting. <laughs> it's really cool. Um, rainbows, even, you know, rainbows, cutthroats, they all, you know, I hear, I, one thing I will say with fishing, and I've said this a thousand times, if anybody's heard me talk, I don't deal with absolutes and in, in fly fishing, like always and never like throw those out the window. Right. I, I think there's a time and a place for anything. I think you always need to be a sponge and have an open mind. The only absolutes with fishing, in my opinion, are two things. Trout need water and they need to eat. Right. Right. Amen. And they need to spawn. Eat. That's two. So three. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, all that stuff, when I, I hear, I, I know some guides on the water close to me, it's, ah, this, this river's, the Farmington river is not a streamer fishery. Uh, I can't, I can't get fish on stream. They don't eat streamers here. Uh, rainbows don't eat streamers. That's all nonsense. It's complete BS. Yeah. You know, there's a time and a place for everything. Granted, some fish have a higher predisposition to maybe being caught on a streamer. And I, put that back more on patterning changes in environment. I think that can really induce that personally. Um, but um, back to all those other fish, you know, brook trout, especially 
I mean, I, there's nothing better on the smaller streams catching brook trout. I, I like the prospect with dry flies. You know, I got a kick out of listening to Rosenbauer with you talking about prospecting small streams. I still do that every year. I love it. Um, but, you know, you, you can do the same thing with small streamers there. I mean, micro size stuff, like kind of the stuff that I was showing you earlier, these micro bucktails and things like that. Um, you know, they, brook trout are one of those fish that, I think if you were to pick a fish to cut your teeth on for trout in any aspect of fly fishing, especially streamers, I think they're a perfect choice because they're a little easier to fool. You know, you right. can learn a lot. You know, you can shorten some learning curves with those fish, whether it's hook sets, strikes, things of that nature. They're more readily uh, uh, willing to chase a fly down, you know, so... That's kind of yeah, you summed it up. I mean, there's, there's like, you know, bull trout. Uh, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a soft mouth trout in Croatia, Salmo obtrusoiotrosis or whatever it's called. And that's, it's sort of like a, a marble trout, brown trout combination, sort of like a Croatian um, uh, salmon, they call it. And it, it migrates in these rivers between lakes and they're big stream readers. Uh, rainbow trout, you summed it up. Rainbow trout are voracious stream readers. We just don't give them enough uh, attention a lot of times. But I could swing, swinging trout spay, little mini white game changers. I pick up a ton of big rainbows on it. And yep. uh, it's about size. I think brown trout will stuff anything in its mouth. We catch five-inch brown trout on 10-inch on uh, drunken disorderlies, okay? Uh, and And... Whereas rainbows will tend to stuff things in more appropriately, appropriately, um, uh, brown trout just don't know when to say no, and it's just it's it's in it's endemic to that species of just kill and eat. Uh, but uh, anyways, uh, landlocked Atlantic salmon, perfect example. There, that's where that whole Welsh and uh, Carrie Stevens school came. They're perfect bait fish eaters. Um, we don't fish enough streamers for Atlantic salmon in Atlantic salmon destinations because. Everything's based on that, you know, hair wing design, that that traditional uh, Atlantic salmon fly. But, you know, when I went to Quebec, a lot of time we fished roadkill. One of my guys and I talked about it in, in my selectivity book on inventing. We were taking giant lumps of marabou in double jointed articulation and fishing, you know, Charlie Valley rock pool on the Cascapadia and in and, and, and purple and blacks and all kinds of shit, you know, steelhead colors and um, and, and one of my guys got a 40 pound Atlantic on it. And the guy said, that's wrong, man. That's just not supposed to happen. You know, <laughs> if it ain't a blue charm, um, you know, then you shouldn't be fishing the damn thing. And, um, so it's, it's about thinking outside the box, but Atlantic's landlocks, uh, we're going to take a question, uh, now, and then we're going to get into the, uh, to the, the Genesis and Bible of the, the groundbreaking of the modern, uh, steelhead, the Kelly Gallup, uh, school, uh, but let's take a question now from Kaylee from Cheyenne, Wyoming. Uh, she says, hey, guys, love the podcast. Uh, I am new to streamer fishing, having a tough time casting really big articulated streamers on sinking tip lines. Uh, any advice? Uh, Rich, you want to start off with that one? Yeah, I mean, if if you're new to it, that's, listen, uh, is Kaylee you said her name was? Yeah, Kaylee. Kaylee, Kaylee uh, you're 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 not by yourself. The first time people get into fishing those style of fly lines, it's a completely different ball of wax. When I, when I was guiding and teaching this stuff on a regular basis, when even you take somebody who's been fly fishing for a while and you hand them a line that has weight to it, it's a completely different animal. So your casting dynamics stay the same, but you might have to change some things. So I'm going to assume that you're probably fishing 
today's integrated sink line. It probably has a section on it that sinks, a transitional zone, and then it's got a running line off the back, whether it's a floating or intermediate, as opposed to a full sinking line, which is kind of like what I grew up fishing. They still have them. They're used more in lakes now, but they not a lot of people fish them in rivers. So a lot of times with those style of fly lines, unless you are and I, we, do, we, could, we could spend hours talking about lines right now because there's so many out there and I'm kind of a line nut, but I'm going to keep it short and to the point. A lot of times what ends up happening with those uh, integrated sinking lines is if you've been fly fishing for a while and you have the ability to cast beyond 60 feet, you're used to carrying your floating line in the air. And what you'll slowly realize is when you take a integrated sinking head, it's going to hinge. So a lot of times we're shooting these lines. Okay. So my first suggestion would be to shorten it up. What I mean by that is if you go to pick up your fly line off the water or you're getting ready to cast, you take, I'm all about efficiency in the water. I tell people all the time, you know, you don't catch fish in the air. Your fly has got to be in the water. So if you can maximize the amount of time that your flies in the water, you're going to increase the probability that you're going to catch fish. So if you can cut those false casts down short, shorter and less then your flies in the water more. So what you're going to want to do is when you go to false cast, you're really not going to want to have much more than that sinking head and maybe that transition zone of that fly line outside the tip of your rod. If you try to carry a ton of line, you're going to have problems with it. So that's probably one issue that we might be able to fix right there. Okay. Um, the other thing is it could come down to your leader design. All right. There's all kinds of different schools of thought. If you're fishing one of those types of, um, integrated sinking lines with leader lengths, how you want to devise your leaders. One way to fix that, um, I know um, Kelly likes to keep his real simple. It's either one or two different diameters of, of mono or whatever maxima. It could be 20 and 15 and that's it. Or he'll just use a straight section of 15 or 20, right? Um, I'm of the mindset. I typically will still build some taper into my leaders, especially if I'm dealing with a fly that's a little more wind resistant and I need it to turn over. It's a little more forgiving, especially if you're new to this, because even if you dump a cast or you have a bad presentation, there's a higher pr probability that that fly is still going to turn over. Because ideally what we want that fly to do when it hits the water, the second it hits the water, we can be in contact with it. We want it to lay out flat. It's not like we're doing a, a pile cast, fishing dry flies, or some sort of a, a George Harvey cast, right? We want a straight line from where our line ends exits our fly rod and where our our fly is in the water column because there's a prop as soon as you can get on that fly if you do get a strike because there are some days when the fly hits the water and the fish clobber it you want to be able to cross their eyes right because if you have any slack in that system probably going to miss that fish so by tapering that leader and keeping it shorter depending on where you're fishing i on average on where i fish around here my leader from the end of my sinking line to my fly is anywhere from on the short end, three feet, out to maybe six, seven feet, all right? So shorten it up. And you can do that by, I taper it out. I don't always look at um, pound break strength when it comes to leader material. There's so much leader ma different materials out there now. I look at diameters. Yep. I hope, knock on wood, because a lot of them aren't, as advertised, which I'm sure you know that, Matt. <laughs> I hope it's close in proximity to what it's telling me. And I try to step that down. So, and I use what Lefty used to use as a leader formula, 50% or 60% of my leader's butt section to help with turnover. And then the rest right. of the terminal. 
Absolutely. So, and I don't go, I rarely go below 12 pound test to my fly fish and streamers. It's usually 12 to 16 on average. So yeah. Easily, I hope that yeah. helps. That, that, was, that was very thorough, Rich. Thanks. You know, another thing to look at is, is your loops, opening up your loops more. Um, the big totally. issue, you know, now that I'm doing so many space schools and I'm studying the loop to death, D loops and V loops and looking at loops and how we're progressing into those loops and how we're loading those loops, um, opening those loops up and making them breathe like a good bottle of wine is, is essential when you're toss, tossing that much weight. And, you know, you can't be as tight and sharp as you are with a, you know, a size 16 sulfur. You have to open, you have to realize the dynamics that the line is going into loading that loop and loading that rod. And you, and that's why you're getting hooks in the back of your ears and your head is because we're not, we're casting too quickly. We're not opening up our loops enough. We're not letting the wine breathe. And, yep. and that is so, so important. You can, you can also too, before I forget, um, I, I think, for me, like a lot of uh, fishing in the salt kind of helped with a lot of my casting in regards to presenting streamers in the freshwater. But what other thing you can look at too is, you know, to add on what Matt's saying with opening your loops, which is huge, is looking at your rod angles and your positions too. So a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of different schools of thought and they're all good. You, you have to basically figure out what works for you because what might work for you may not work for somebody else. Everybody's body mechanics are different flexibility, all this stuff, not to go down that avenue. But I'm when I cast, especially if I know I'm fishing a fly that might be a little bit more wind resistant or problematic casting, I have a tendency to cant my arm out a little bit more to my side so I can keep that line and that path of my line and my cast away from my body. Exactly. All right? It might not be, you know, the most accurate way if you want to get into precision casting, which we could go into that too. But, you know, and I learned this from Joan Wolf. You know, the, the best way, if you want to work on your accuracy is put that rod right between your eyes, right? And just yeah. practice your casting this way. And you can really dial it in because now you have both your, your depth perceptions right there, but with what we're talking about and how we're fishing, it might be a little problematic. So what I like to do, and it just, I'm more of a, uh, my arm's probably out at like 35 degrees off my body, but that's what works yeah. for me. Yeah. You know, I'm a little bit bigger. I, I it, just, it just, I can, I feel a lot more comfortable too. And also being able to deal with wind and anything else that comes into play by keeping that line off my side. So just change your angles a little bit and see how it works. And these are all things you can practice in your yard. You don't even yeah, need absolutely. Those are the, no. you know, Kaylee, you just got a book on uh, casting streamers, but um, you know, basically it's your plane of your rod. So you have to look at the planes. If you're looking at 12 o'clock, one o'clock, 11 o'clock, two o'clock, you know, going into more sidearm plane uh, allows those loops to open up so you don't get whacked in the back of the head and you don't, you know, you don't take it in the ear and in, in, in the neck or whatever. Um, so all that stuff, and it's just practice, getting out there and practice doing what feels comfortable for you. Um, but the bigger the fly, the harder the challenge. And start off with smaller streamers, casting smaller streamers, get a feel for how your rod's loading up with with your line setup, uh, every every line setup and rod uh, is a differential point in loading, and and so get comfortable with what you got and start smaller, and then progressively work your way up, and you you will make your eye your your hand uh, movement coordination with your rod as you adjust to bigger flies. So don't start off with a big fly and expect to do miracles because everybody still has struggles with big flies, and especially in windy conditions and all kinds of stuff. So. 
we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about that later, but right now I think we have to get into uh, um, uh, the, the Kelly Gallup school uh, that that was the groundbreaking ground zero genesis of what we're discussing today. Uh, it's a Michigan school. It started in Traverse city at the Troutsman. Um, Russ Madden was part of it. You know, Jack Ford, uh, Kestner, the guys that, you know, uh, rich that you fish with, um, you know, modern streamers for trophy trout was one of those books that came along with dramatic impact that changed the whole thought process of how the sport of meat slinging art form is conducted. Um, Kelly, and of course, Bob Lindsay. And Bob was a perfect writer, the perfect eloquent um, literary man to to make that book sort of flow. And, uh, you know, their perfect big fly genius fusion and love for uh, big browns gelled perfectly in their different and unique talents that made the book a groundbreaking opus. You know, I, I used to see Kelly Guide on the PM when I was writing my first book, the Pier Marquette River Journal. And, you know, he his dad was a guide. He was this you know, brash bodybuilding, good looking guy, charming personality, this, this sort of, uh, sort of, uh, Brad Pitt and river runs through it. He was the guy that always had the best cast, the best flies, the best this. And, you know, look at what happened to you now, Kelly, you just went to shit, you know, but other than that, you're okay. Um, I'm just, I love you. uh, but anyways, you know, he, he, um, he brought the school as the, he was in that wet fly swing school that was popular on PM guides, you know, the semi school, they were all about, you know, fishing mayfly patterns and the hexagenia hatch and swinging flies. And and he was inspired by the Houghton Lake Special. It's sort of a Silver Hilton style black and white fly. That was a special longstanding PM, uh, Pierre Marquette Legends and Trout Guides and Seminole. And, you know, but Kelly was pushing the envelope and was watching bass fishing shows. And, and if you listen to the podcast that I did with Kelly, he really revealed that, you know, the bass masters and those guys were, were, were all about the, the crankbaits and throwing deep crankbaits and, you know, predatorial aggression and, and vibration and Hertz levels and things of that nature. So, you know, it was that, that whole school that developed it. And then he, you know, moved to Montana cause he got sick and tired of the, the steelhead and salmon fly stagging game that we play here. And, uh, and, you know, he, he, started the whole game and now it's slide to slide in his, uh, you know, trophy trout, uh, you know, um, modern streamers for trophy trout one was, was the Bible, his new book, the, 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 the new, the version number two uh, takes it to the next level. Um, you know, it was, you know, the Montana was the brown blossoming brown trout Mecca, you know, with, with the Madison and the big hole and, and, you know, the tailwaters and, so that was the perfect place. And he pushed the, he pushed the politically correct limits with bizarre names like sex dungeons and boogeymans and stack blondes and zoo cougars and butt monkeys and barely legal. And it just went on and on and on. And I know the story behind the sex dungeon, but if you listen to the <laughs> podcast with Kelly that I did, um, he talks all about it. Um, you know, and that, that was the whole thing. And then the big, the bigger and better, bigger and better in the fly size. And, you know, Initially, we weren't fishing that big, but then a lot of that influence came from Mark Sadati uh, from the East Coast saltwater guys. And Mark was, you know, he came up with that, you know, his his flies and, um, you know, testing that coming to Michigan and fishing the upper Manistee and, you know, fishing, you know, size 12 inch long, you know, saltwater flies that, that Sadati was tying. And, uh, you know, that that started changing it. And there was like, the oh, my God, I couldn't believe that fish took that fly. So it was a synthesis, but that Troutsman in Traverse City was that 
sort of when we talk about the, the Theodore Gordon and the Roy Steenrod and the Christian and that whole school of putting that whole uh, Hewitt thing together, that's basically what that was for streamers. Where's your, where's your, um, where's your introduction to Kelly's book and where were you and what, how did you take it and where, where you go from there, uh, Rich? So I, I was turned on to that book by a guy who actually kind of took me under my wing when I first started guiding. And I, I've been rowing boats now for geez, 20 years, but the guy who showed me basically was a crash course. I got hired as a guide um, 20 years ago uh, by happens chance. A lot of people heard this story. I won't get into it. It's, it's a long one. It'll get us off tar- topic, but he, uh, this guy, Steve Yost, and Steve was the guy, and I still keep in touch with Steve. He lives down in Georgia now by the Chattahoochee. I don't get to really fish with him anymore, which thinks if he hears this, I, hopefully this spring when he comes up, we'll finally get to do that again. But him and my friend Mike uh, that I, you know, I fished with a lot, we we became pretty close. And, and Steve gave me a crash course in rowing a boat on the Houstonic, which, by the way, I fish more there than anywhere else around here in Connecticut, just so you guys know, because it's really caters to what I like to do. Um, and it's a little, it's got some technical water on it, but Steve was the one that turned me on to that book. Cause I didn't really know anything about it. I, I had a library of books and a lot of older stuff. I didn't, wasn't really getting into it because I didn't have a huge, um, my fishing gear repertoire was pretty limited at that time because my, I was in my early twenties. I was trying to just started out with a career fishing a lot, but you know, I kind of had a budget saving for a house potentially get married, you know? So Steve turned me on to that book because me and Steve kind of gravitated towards one another. Um, he was getting out of guiding and I was kind of getting into it. And he, we both liked to fish streamers and Steve had some different things that he liked. He fished a lot of bunny patterns and whatnot. And he kept talking about this book, about this book. And I'm like, what the hell book are you talking about? You know? And, um, so I go into the shop one day and, and the shop that I worked out, which is no longer in business, the Hoosonic River Outfitters, where I cut my teeth. I Harold like that shop. There, that was, I, I did a, excuse me to interrupt, but I, the Hoosonic River Outfitters was a, was a great shop. I like that. It was yeah. kind of cool. Old you know, it was, it was great. It was, yeah. In the middle of kind of nowhere. I mean, it's, it's, you wouldn't think in the middle of nowhere in Connecticut because Connecticut has a big, you know, population base. But when you get into the Northwest corner, it's a lot more rural you know? So, and it was on literally on the banks of the Housatonic, right? So I go into the shop one day before it closed after guiding and I got a copy of this book. I think I read it in like two days and I I like to read. I have a really big library, just dove into it head first. And, you know, I'd fished a couple of the flies that were in there, like Kelly or uh, Steve used to always fish, you know, yellow zoo cougar, yellow zoo cougar. I'm like, what the hell is he talking about? You know? So, where'd this fly come from? And that's where I kind of learned about it. And that was my introduction to it. And um, it really changed. The, that's where I started to learn about, because my whole streamer fishing up until then, prior to that, because was, if I wasn't fishing a floating line and adding line to it, which that presents all kinds of issues with casting, it was a full sink line. That's kind of what I had. And if you remember how those old full sink lines were, Matt, they were kind of a pain in the ass to cast. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, and if you're in moving water when you're retrieving it, and you know, it would get wrapped around your feet. It would catch anything in the water it possibly could, right? So Steve showed me these teeny lines, you know, Jim Teeny integrated lines, and they had been around for a bit 
already mm-hmm. at that time. Um, and you know, th- those were, there was like a teeny 130, a 150, 200, and then 300. Oh yeah. Yeah. We, we mostly stayed within that 200 range because of where we fished and we were mostly fishing right. six baits and I'll get into rods and stuff later because what I fish with now is drastically changed to what I did then. But, and then there was also like the airflow had a sinking line called the depth finder. Right. And, uh, it was a great line until the original versions of that fly line were terrible because they would just use heat shrink over the connection between the sinking portion and the running line. And I can't tell you how many of those lines I broke, but, um, so anyway, Steve kind of turned me into that and that kind of changed how I fish things. And then, you know, we would, I was starting to see, and, and it just, it got, it got crazy. Like that's all I wanted to do when I wasn't fishing hatches. And, and I did a lot of nymphing then too, you know, cause like we won't get into the nymphing stuff, but nymphing was a big, big producer when you're on guide trips, let's face it, you know, it catches fish. So when I wasn't doing that, I was fishing streamers, but you know, Steve kind of turned me on to, how to use these lines, these different types of flies. And at that time, you know, big was like only like three and a half inches. Now we're fishing stuff a little bigger, but, and the articulated stuff was just starting to really gain steam. So like the second year I was there was when we started fishing those articulated zoo cougars that, and Kelly's changed the name on them a few times. I think the heifer groomer or whatever he calls it now, but that fly, I remember that first year and you know, Tori, so Tori Collins, I had him in the boat with me. I had got a boat shortly thereafter. And that was like the one really breakthrough year was about the second year in over there. We just started seeing fish that we weren't seeing before fishing these flies, you know, and and, and you catch a 20 inch fish, a 20 inch fish, even today, I don't care what you say. I feel like uh, social media has kind of degraded that a bit. Like everybody's catching twenties, which is complete BS, no offense. Um, But a 20 inch fish is still a great trout. We were seeing fish, North of that, hitting the midway section. And then even I'll tell a story later with Tori. I had Tori in the boat one day where we saw a river monster, you know, and that's, I can still see that fish to this day. And it's, that's kind of what it's been at. But I would say Steve was the one that turned me on to that. And then slow, somewhere in between there, in that time frame, I'd never gone to any fly fishing shows as a spectator to see any stuff. Same guy, Tori, turned me on to going to one of those, went to a show with him. And it was one of the last shows that Kelly did with the fly fishing show. And I met him there. And we talked about all this stuff. And, you know, Johnny, who guides for him now, Johnny had fished the Housatonic because he went to school in Vermont and knew a lot about it. And we just had these conversations. And then it just went from there. Everything kind of just took off. But I would say Steve was probably the guy that turned me on to the book. And the book... That book, I will say, out of a lot of things I've read, I mean, one of the books I have here, and we can maybe delve into this because there's some stuff in this old book, which is my father's old copy of Trout by Ray Bergman. All right. That I, I use not only as for my fly fishing journey, but even when I started fishing altogether. There's some things in there that Kelly really expounded upon in his book that I think a lot of people for years, he really put it on the map. And that's in addition to the flies and how the flies changed, it really changed how everybody fishes these things. But there were some things in that book also that go way back. And I'm sure I know Kelly's read that book too, but I think he really brought it to the forefront. And a lot of these new fly designs and things that he, he, Russ, all those guys, Jack, you know, Jack came up with it, you know, it really changed the, the whole streamer game to where it is now. 
Oh yeah. There's no question. And, and you know, that whole school in, um, in Traverse city and the Troutsman, you know, when, when Mark Sadati East coast guy comes down and starts fishing his, his big saltwater patterns, it changed everything. And it was the bigger and bigger, bigger and better envelope. And, you know, um, then going down to, to seducing large white river, Arkansas, 20 inch Browns uh, on these, you know, nine to 12 inch long patterns. That, that was the, where we were using three, four inch patterns. In the meantime, he busted open a whole new school, the streamer design that, you know, even influenced, you know, the guys up there like Russ Madden, John Kessner, yep. and those guys were like, holy shit, we're, we're, we're hooking these big fish and, and that whole thing. And then the, the whole Arkansas, you know, the whole Arkansas thing came about and uh, you know, how everybody, the whole, you know, Michigan mitt invasion of the, you know, that, you know, Arkansas river and, and it was Kelly and, and, um, you know, um, Sadati went down there and started getting banging them on on his big patterns. And, you know, it, it, it sort of transformed everything. And that basically was the the genesis for what you and everybody else is doing sort of today. And and uh, it was that sculpin muddler invasion um, and, uh, you know, fishing eight, nine weight rods and sinking lines before we were fishing streamers on five weights and six weights was a big rod. Uh, so that was, that was sort of that, you know, here's a new game that was big and, and is, there is no such thing as too big, even though, you know, the experts say, oh, that's a pike fly or that's a musky fly. Um, that whole thing changed. Now, if you look at the size yeah. of double deceivers that Mike Schmidt's tying at Angler's Choice and, and the stuff you know that 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 musky guys are doing playing chocolates, uh, crazy long you know musky flies. Those things could catch brown trout. I mean, even 100%. small brown trout. I, and, I will uh, say, I will say this, Matt. Not to cut you off, I, but I also think off anytime. What, what you need to look at when it comes to those big flies is there's a time and a place for it. So you know those on the White River where you have fish that can be measured in pounds and north of twenty pounds. There's a higher probability for you to fish something like that under certain conditions. Right. So, exactly. you know, it's, it doesn't just mean, and this is where I think, you know, we're, people in general always try to generalize and simplify everything. Oh, if I fish a big fly, I'm automatically that that's going to, I'm going to get my biggest trout that way. And that's not always necessarily the case. You know, there's certain times where those bigger flies are more productive and it's usually where there's changes in the water. You know, or you also have to have a fishery that has those types of fish that are willing to chase flies that big. There's definitely sweet spots in there. We, we all talk about this, all the names you talk about, and I'd add a bunch more in there. You know, um, you've got Alex Lafkis from your neck of the woods. He's another yep. big streamer guy. Sobble guy. He's a white you know? guy. Yep, exactly. You know? Alex is one, you know, I got, I've, I've been able to, you know, bump elbows with all these guys, Matt, uh, Matt and Eric Krajewski and Eric does more of the warm water stuff, but all those guys, those bro those two brothers, same thing. They yep. influx a big lot time. of time, big time you know? guys, good Polish boys too. Good. Yeah, Polish I love it. I'm boys. part Polish myself. So I get it. Everyone, everybody's Polish. There's a lot of his fishing heritage in the, the Polish, uh, you know, lineage. So it is what it is. I think it's, we're born that way. Right. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, back to Sadati too. Sadati, you know, he took a lot of his, and this is where I think, you know, if you look at the big picture, there's all these different personalities that have infused all this stuff from different walks of life that have added to what that book did, you know, like back to Sadati, he took 
you know, Mark's probably one of the best damn casters on the planet. And I know, I know some disciples of him that I fish with. He's my good, but he's Kevin. not that good. Come on. He's pretty Mark's damn good. He he's has good. a different way of doing it, but it works for him. Right. So my friend, Kevin, uh, who I saltwater fish with. Just Kevin kidding, Howard, Mark. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Kevin, Kevin's a, a Mark Sadati uh, disciple. He's the guy's a phenomenal caster. And I, I always bust on him because when I, he comes out to do a float with me every year to do dry flies and he's throwing lasers at rising fish when we're on the Delaware. And I'm like, Hey, you got, it's got, you got to present it a little softer. We're not fishing for albacore out on the sound, you know, but you know, that Mark brought that bigger fly and those synthetics and a lot of that other stuff into that whole realm. Slammer, which, his famous slammer, the slammer. Yeah. Fly. And you, you know, know, so you've got the influence from that there. And, so I, and, and I think, people. I think that's the cool thing with what we're talking about is there's, we recognize that it, it isn't just one specific entity or it came from one place. There's so much stuff that went into it. Like Kelly talks about, you know, learning a lot from the conventional tackle world and the bass anglers and things like that, you know, and then you bring in the influx of, I mean, you're talking about deer hair before Bob Popovic's hollow flies and all that stuff has a great deal of influence with a lot of the fly patterns we tied today. You talked about the double deceiver that, you know, my, another good friend of mine, Mike Schmidt is ties thousands of these things a year. You know, yeah, so Mike, Mike Schmidt is a, is a master, uh, Mike, you know, I'm a big fan and hope you're listening, Mike, but, uh, you, so what you're doing, Rich, uh, you're just talking about the school of disciples that came out of there, which is just so massive and they're not all on the front cover of fly fisherman magazine. Okay. Uh, right. so, you know, this expert shit and this celebrity stuff, this has got to stop because we're, we, we have so many people out there that need to, to, to have, to, 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 to be part of this whole thing. And sometimes these people don't need the attention. They don't want to be, you know, celebrities. They don't need to. And, you know, talk about excellent casters. Look at um, John Kestner. That guy's one of the best casters that I've ever seen. And, yeah. and you might ask 10,000 fly fishermen, do you know John Kestner? You know, so what, what this is, is basically people that have passion and soul and, just march to the tune of their own drummer. And that's the people that I want to have on this podcast. That's the people that I'm looking to have rich strollers types, these kind of people. And, and there you have the heart and soul and the passion. And without that, you're dead. You're just, you're just a facade. You're just an empty shell. And I think that's most important thing that we have to look at. Look at yourself. We'll look at what you want to do. Look at what you want to contribute and, and march to the tune of your drummer. And that's, all the names that we're talking about here. So going back to this whole thing with the, the let's talk about the strip jerk revolution. Okay. The strip mm -hmm. jerk revolution was massive because up until then, for the most part, we were fishing streamers in a very strip cadence, boring, just strip the line, strip the line cadence. That is just strip, 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 drip, 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 drip as in drip mean boring right. and then along came strip jerk faster strip jerk jig jig strip jerk jig um that whole cadence changed everything so we're fishing we're fishing a streamer like it could possibly be injured it could it, we're we're triggering a strike we're triggering the strike mechanism and that's what it's all about and that's where Kelly really laid it down in a foundation of a book and even went on further and then you had, uh, on top of that, you have, you know, Tommy Lynch come along um, yep. and drunk and disorderly. And Tommy was a, was, is a, was a nymphing uh, grapefruit egging guy, fishing spawning gravel. Now he, he just can't stand it. And he's the biggest advocate against it. 
And, and, you know, he was just when you thought there's no room for creativity, he comes along with his drunken disorderly with that beautiful shovel head type look to it. Um, and, and he comes along with a fly that behaves like a Dahlberg diver. And then you got Larry Dahlberg who right up there that if you, you know, when I talked to Tommy and I talked to him quite a bit and I, he always says, you don't forget about Sadati. Don't forget about Dahlberg, Larry Dahlberg, Larry Dahlberg. Look at when I pump, when I strip that, that drunken disorderly, I want that thing to, to dive and wiggle. Like it's, it's drunken disorderly, like it is drunken stupefied. And I want that head to dig in. And when you watch, watch him, when he watch him strip these drunken disorderlies, he gets that head to dig down deep and it, and to wobble and and wobble like a like a Dahlberg diver or wobble like a lot of like bass bass pro guys do. And um, so you take that and you and you put it all together and all the Tommy time on the White River and that whole genesis is just um, was the foundation. And now we're going on further. Do you think? Um, what's your take on that whole? Versus passive stripping to, to the new strip jerk revolution. How did you fish when you first started? Well, you know, I, like I said, that there was one book that I was kind of my Bible because that's what my dad turned me on to as a kid. And that was Ray Bergman's Trout. Right. And I still, I have two copies. I have my father's original copy. And I mean, there's, it's pretty rough shape and there's bookmarks all through this thing. But, um, you know, there was always the conventional and, downstream and across swing that we talk about and, you know, manipulate the fly back to you is kind of like what I learned how to do, get a belly in the line to get it to sink a little bit, um, you know, and then kind of re- briefly or, you know, give it twitches and things like that. And it, it worked a little bit, but in that trout book, you know, and I, and I copied some notes down on this because I remember specifically reading it is, you know, he, he even talked about jerking the rod in there. And, and the guy, and Jack says this, I fish with Jack in the winter, and he says the same thing. Like, you know, it, the, the people who can manipulate the fly the most or can do all kinds of different things with that fly while it's in the water are some of the most successful streamer fishermen, and I completely believe in that. But, you know, back to what Ray Bergman said, he says, you know, a jerk of the rod, you know, we used to do the hand twist. If you remember that, you do that with sure. wet flies, yeah. the same thing, you know. Um, and then a hand in rod retrieve and a strip retrieve, which if you think about that, that's really the early beginnings of what Kelly was, has really popularized, you know, so you might jerk the rod and then you retrieve some line. It's the same thing to a degree of what a jerk strip is, or kind of like what, you know, I know uh, Tommy does a similar thing, but in a different plane, right? He's got all different things you can do. So for me, it started basic. I mean, it was basically manipulating line. And then I learned about I learned about the jerk strip retrieve through Kelly's book. And, and I found, and I, we started doing that and that was changing things because it was just another technique or thing or arrow in your quiver. Right. So it doesn't say specifically do it all the time, but if I can impart some different motion and if I do that type of retrieve and I get some positive reinforcement from the fish, boom, right. Home run. So it's kind of like what I tell people in the water, we're looking at patterns, you know, what are the patterns we have here? Could, where are the fish coming from? You know, are they coming from specific depths? Are they coming from specific structures, certain lies? What kind of a retrieve is working, right? So it's the same thing. That added such a whole other aspect to things um, from the way I fish streamers for me personally, and I think for a lot of people. So I think it was written about, but not really, 
I guess you could say are clearly articulated. So I don't necessarily know that people were doing that in Ray Bergman's time, yeah. but I, but I think Kelly clearly was able to put that into paper and pen it and in a way that you could understand it and you could extrapolate it on the river. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Ray Bergman was also the first advocate for bigger flies. And I got a couple quotes here that, you know, bigger flies do work, totally. blah, blah, blah. But anyways, we are going to take another break and we're going to come back with a question. And we are talking about the the ground school, the groundbreaking Genesis school of ground zero of the big streamer me chase. And we are um, we are with Rich Strollis here and we're going to come back and take a question and then talk about his Chasing Shadows book and a lot of other stuff. We got a lot of stuff to cover. So we will be right back. Stay tuned. Books and lines have been around since Cro-Magnon Man and Neanderthal Man when they were living in caves and in the Alps in Europe trying to find out how to catch the round trout that were in the rivers and the Atlantic salmon that were running up the hollowed waters of Europe's rivers. And to do that correctly, you need the finest quality possible. And nothing more is entitled to that quality than Angler Sport Group and their incredible portfolio of Daiichi hooks. Daiichi hooks are at the pinnacle of the hook experience from all their dry fly, nib, wet fly hooks, specialty hooks. I am particularly fond of their specialty dry fly hooks uh, in the very micro minutia sizes. White gaps that allow for the hooking like some of my favorite hooks by Partridge back in the day with Vince Marinero's Mitch hooks, but their designs today are absolutely incredible. Also, Varivas material is absolutely at the top. Their leader systems, their fluorocarbon, their colored leaders, which come in lime green and light blue and different colors, allow you to fool some of the most selective trout, some of the most selective salmon and steelhead in the world. Varivas is by far at the pinnacle. Suppleness, strength, diversity is all encompassed when you use Varivas and Daiichi hooks all at Angler Sport Group from New York. Books are the foundation of Hollowed Waters podcasts. We talk about them in reverence, all the great literature that our sport, our art form, our passion, of hollowed waters and sport of fly fishing has given us, has its strong link to where all of this has come from. The books that we have featured are in bibliographies in the Hollowed Water podcast series and in the repertoire of the many guests that we've had ever since Hollowed Waters started, starting with iconic guests like Paul Weimer's book, and Kelly Gallops and Simon Gosworth and Rick Custich and Topher Brown's Atlantic Salmon books and Al Cucci and Dr. Bachman and the list goes on. But basically, what I'm trying to say here in this advertisement is that we need to pay attention to all these great books and the best way to do that is to go and sometimes 
dig into your Amazon or your local fly shops or your local bookstores, Barnes and Noble, and get a hold of them. Um, also, some of the books and some of the experiences I've had with books has been truly the crux of my fly fishing career, like my selectivity, the theory and method of fly fishing for fussy trout, Atlantic salmon and steelhead, and also my latest book, The Brown Trout, Atlantic Salmon Nexus, which details the history and the lore, the tactics, the techniques for these wonderful fish that we love. We would love you to go and experience more, to log in to our website and see the bibliographies we have had, and explore your joy of the many authors for the many decades and perhaps centuries that have given their knowledge and their wisdom and their craft and share them with you. We are back and we are talking the streamer evolution revolution of slinging meat and we're getting deep and and enjoying this uh, wonderful ride here with with the professore rich strollis um and it's so wonderful to have you rich because your knowledge and depth is wonderful and and uh we're going to take um a question here from jason jason from uh valley forge pennsylvania i know where that is i did a fly fishing uh, uh class the selectivity class there on valley creek or whatever the creek is there and um it was with tco in 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 uh philadelphia in in that area and uh it was great fun a beautiful little stream it was 98 degrees outside that's all i remember is almost passing out from the heat but anyways jason if you're this is your question lately he says lately i've been throwing larger sticks switch rods 11 foot eight weights with long shovel head grains uh heavy grains wide two-handed overhead casts have you guys tried that uh i'm gonna start off here because i've been doing a lot of that lately and i know tommy's gotten into it he, he got bought off on it about four or five years ago when he was on the white river yeah it's a great way to fish and what has allowed you to do that now is the lightness of the switch rods today you take these super light orvis missions and these light nrx loomis rods they're they weigh like a four weight or a three weight. I mean, they're just so light. So you can now cast them. I, I just do overhead spay casts with them because you can't really load up a big streamer uh, in a standard double spay or a snap tee or anything because it just doesn't work. The line is not in the line and, and fly just doesn't work that way. But I overhead with, with big open loops. When you do these overhead spay casts, you could cast a brick if you want to, uh, as long as you open those loops up, like we were talking about earlier and cast it, you could cast across, you could do 120 foot casts with these things with big streamers, but you got to slowly load it up, slowly open up that loop, slowly load that rod and slowly propel forward. You can't be doing any speed in this whole thing or at any muscle, but they do work well. And you could tuck that rod under your arm and strip it. You could do it the strip crawling method, the the, the slow the, the slow crawl or the fast crawl. You could do anything. You could strip with one handed, with the switch rod. So what is the switch rod revolution has done? 
in the terms of the weight of those rods, they're so light that you could now treat them as one-handed rods, which before you couldn't do because they were all very heavy. So yeah, it's a wonderful way to go. And you could use long, really long shovel head um, uh, uh, integrated leaders and, and, and lines with it. And, and it's, it's just a, it's a way to cover a big river, a lot of big river and a lot of water. And um, that's my experience. So you're on the right track. What about you, Rich? Yeah, I, I, um, those are what I call like an X factor thing. When I used to do my streamer presentations and I got into gear, I would talk about switch rods and two handed rods a little bit at the end. And anybody who wanted to really delve into it after we were done, I would say, meet me after this is going and we'll talk some more about it. I, um, there's a huge amount of relevance with that with streamers and you hit the nail on the head, Matt, when it comes to fishing, some of those bigger flies, it's really hard to pull some of those flies out of the water using traditional spay tactics or skagit tactics, especially if you're dealing with something that has weight. So, you know, the sculpins that I like to fish, those have weight They're Once they anchor, good luck pulling that out. So that two handed overhand cast works really well with it. Um, I will, however, do some skagit touch and go type casts with the ones that I use um, with any of those neutrally buoyant flies that I have, because those, you, they're like weightless. So you can still do a lot of that traditional stuff with it. Um, I like the compact stuff. I, I like to, the touch and go cast uh, type stuff for me. That works really well. I really enjoy fishing those. You hit the nail on the head on bigger water, but also too, when the rivers are higher. And if I don't have a partner to get out in the boat for the day, and I really got the itch to go and try and hang a couple of nice fish, those two-handed rods come in very, very handy because I don't necessarily need to get into the water. And a lot of times when the water's high, you don't want to be in the water because you're at risk, right? And the fish typically are where you're used to standing when they're at normal flows. So there's a lot of value in those there. Um, and, you know, as you get older, I know a lot of people get into two-handed uh, style fishing because you know, maybe they've got an injury that's a nagging injury or something that's bothered them, whether their shoulders or their elbows and whatnot. Yeah. The two-handed rods really still allow you to get out there and enjoy that time on the water. Um, I have a, a there's a guy here who I have a lot of respect for in my neck of the woods. He's kind of a he's one of those guys that flies under the radar, extremely knowledgeable. He's uh Jerry I bet you Johns. I know who that is. I bet you I know who that is. Jerry Johns. Uh, um, yeah, one of them, but there's another guy too, an Italian guy. You know the yeah. Italian guy I'm talking to? Go Pan ahead. Pantano? Yep. Phil? Phil. Yep. Another another great guy. They Phil does a lot. I mean, I used to see him quite a bit on the river, but Jerry, he teaches people how to, he, you know, he kind of took me under his wing a few times. I've used him to help me with some of my two-handed casts. And, you know, aside from fish and streamers, You'd be really surprised on the versatility of those two-hand rods. I enjoy fishing, and he turned me on to this because a lot of people think, oh, you know, you're going to longline nymph with it, or you're going to fish wet flies, or you're going to swing small streamers. Let me tell you something. Some of those smaller trout space are awesome for fishing dry flies on bigger water. A lot no, there's of no question. There's no question. You know? So not to digress, but, yeah, there. I mean – they're totally relevant. Um, and you, there's a lot of cool things you can do with it. And I mean, now I, I heard, I heard your podcast with deck the other day. He's awesome. I love that guy. Deck Hogan. Hogan. Yeah. He's um, a monster. 
love him, you know, and uh, he, when he was making, when he really, when the, the two handed and the switch rod stuff really started getting big, he was one of the guys that, I mean, he, he was always, he would readily answer your emails. I mean, he's just a great dude. And um, he talked a lot about how all this stuff's changed. Jerry's seen it all. Cause Jerry's old. He's older than all of us here, but he's, you know, I remember him talking about the times when they were cutting tips and making heads and doing all that stuff. And now yeah. they've kind of taken the learning part out of it, but it's still fun to do that. Um, I even have some myself. I mean, I, 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 did, I delved into a lot of that, even with a single handed rod buying yeah. big spools of T7, T8, T9, T14, trying to make different heads and then recognizing that, ah, the connection points going through the guides is kind of tough, but you know, it's, yeah, it's fun. It's I'd still like to do some of that stuff, but not to digress. But. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the thing about what what happens with you when you get older, your rotator cuff and their whole arthritis and your shoulders start kicking in if you cast as much as we have. And um what a switch rod allows you to do, what a spade rod do. I I I literally only fish single end rods when I'm when I'm dry fly fishing now. Everything else is with switch rods and full spay rods. Uh, I'm swinging soft tackles. I'm swinging um, Atlantic salmon and intruders for steelhead. I'm swinging everything. I'm even swinging wakers for steelhead. Um, yep. Swinging wakers and for October caddis for trout. Um, reason is because when you keep your elbows locked in and you work inside the box in the lever system, when you're working inside the box and you're working inside the lever system of a spay rod, you use no shoulder whatsoever. And if you have arthritis in your shoulders, if you have bone spurs, if you have um, uh, rotator cuff problems, you eventually go to fishing nothing but a two-handed rod. Whether it's for trout on 11-foot three-weight, I have an 11-foot three-inch three-weight. I have 11-foot yeah. four-weights. I have 11-foot eight-weights for streamers. I'm all fishing two-handers, and I have no problem with my shoulders. You don't have to worry about your shoulders. One thing you have to worry about is you have to stay in shape. So one thing we didn't talk about when you're yep. streamer fishing, you better go to the gym. You better keep working out. You better do all kinds of repetitive exercises with your muscles, with your shoulders, with your arms, um, curls, uh, bench pressing. You better do it all. And I'm talking 15, 20 pound weights, not massive weights. No. Just do 50, 60, 100 reps with 10 pounds is going to strengthen you up to fish because you're going to lose the weight ability to fish. So that's it. 100%. 100%. Okay. I mean, I, I dealt with some real bad tendonitis the last couple of years. Yeah. And that was from a pile of different stuff, but you know, it was compounded from digging post holes, but, and, and I train regularly and I, it was really acute last year. It was bothering me when I was rowing. And then on days when I'd be casting bigger flies a lot, you know, it, it really affected me. And then there's not much you can do. There's two schools of thought when you get that it's, Hey, you can do PT, but really if you look at PT and you do physical therapy, you're still aggravating that area. Right. So the other school of thought is, is to, you know, I'll never forget my physical therapist is a, a woman who my, my wife grew up and went to high school with, and they both were big soccer players in high school and our daughters played hockey. And we used to see her at the rink and I'd be like, Hey, I need you to dry needle my, my tendon and my, my uh, right elbow. And she's like, Hey, knucklehead. She's like, well, well you, you need to stop rowing the boat and stop fishing every day. Yeah. Because otherwise it's not going to get any better. And I just looked at it. So that's not going to happen. And I, she goes, well, you know, it's, it's just not going to get better. What do you want it to snap? And I'm like, well, if it snaps, it snaps. It is what it is. It's like, well, tomorrow you're doing nothing. I'm like, no, I'm actually rowing 10 miles a river. Yeah. 
Phil Pantano was the he had this rotator cuff problems and he used to fish with me a lot and he says I could only spay fish now and he got he's always been heavily into spay fish. I used to see him on the yep. Delaware, came out and fish with me, but he got so bad that he couldn't fish for a while. So just a word of caution to all my young listeners out there. And you know what's interesting? Howard Waters, I looked at demographics and we have like 60% of our listeners are between the ages of early 20s to like mid 30s, late 30s. And you guys are the heart and soul of our our, our sport and you guys get it. And a lot of us older guys have been corrupted and we don't get it because we're always looking at money and this and money that. But you guys have the heart and soul. But one thing to start making sure that you stay in shape because as you get older and you get to be a senior like me, um, you're falling apart, dude. And it's because of all that wear and tear. So you better start getting in shape. Right now, our guides are getting in shape is um, rowing all day, um, coming back sunburnt, sitting at a bar and shooting the bullshit with everybody and drinking with his wrist. And uh, that's the exercise. So start exercising now. This is a mandate from uh, Howard Water Central Ministry of Fly Fishing. You must go out to the gym and stay in shape. Rich is built like a freaking brick. So I'm looking at him right now and I'm just seeing rippling muscles. But anyways, okay. Chasing Shadows. Let's talk about your book. Um, it's a magnificent book. You could get it on Amazon. You could get it from fly shops that still carry it. Um, it it's a great book. Um, and it was put together so well. It was one of those last books that were put together by that that publisher and that editor that really had a lot of depth to it. Um, I'm going to put myself up here and say my selectivity book was done by the same guy. And they were really well done. It's not what's going on today. Today it's 50 places to do this and 50 places to meet your lover and all that. But um, the bottom line is it is what it is. Um, that's the new way of doing things. I don't condone it, but Rich's book was depth. It, it had a lot of character to it. And that's what the, what the, what the foundation of what we're talking about has. Go ahead, Rich, tell us about it. The inspiration, what you hope to achieve, what you're, you're happy with and all those things. Well, I, I hate to, to correct people, Matt. So I apologize. It, it's catching shadows. Not Why chasing. Am I saying chasing shadows. So yeah, you know, but you know, if you if you Google search my name, you'll find it. So I don't I like keep, to split I, hair. I keep saying I know it's catching shadows, but I keep it's saying all good. chasing shadows. Why do I? It's all good. That? I'm not offended. I got real thick skin. I am I, stuck um, on chasing shadows for some reason because I think well, I'm I mean, chasing something. It's the same thing, really, right? So yeah, it's the same it, thing. But I'm stuck on thing. chasing, so I'm going to use the word chase. I don't. So care. I guess where to begin was I knew at some point in my life when I was younger that I would write a book someday. What it would be about, I had no idea. Right, so. Uh, I guess it's fitting that before the age of 40, I, I or actually right around the age of 40, I, I did a book um, about what I'm most passionate about, and that's fly fishing. And, and a majority of it is, you know, the subtitle to it is Tying Flies for uh, the Toughest Fish and Strategies for Fishing Them, which I think is a, a little bit higher, higher technical than what it really is. But the book goes over roughly 20 plus patterns um, across a broad spectrum of flies of patterns that I've kind of devised or came up with over the uh, time as a guide and as a fisherman. Um, there's at least four volumes more of patterns I could do. And if some of you, I don't do them as often as I, I, I can, because I just, I don't have the time, but uh, I have a whole library of videos that are out there detailing this stuff, but it's more of, it's not just a tying book. It also, my biggest thing with um, a lot of the books, and I, I heard me talk about it earlier, Matt, is I have a very extensive library and I think there's huge value in reading. And that's how I learned. I learned how to fly tie um, through books. Um, 
there's a lot of books that are out there that they're good. They can get you going, but they don't have a lot of that fruit on the bottom of the yogurt. Right. So my thing when I did that book was I really wanted to make sure that you got, Hey, this isn't just a fly pattern that we're talking about here. We're, we're talking about how, how did you come up with it? What, you know, give us a story about fishing it um, from experience, you know, talk about different variations, ways you can alter it. You know, so it's, it's not just a straight tying book. It also talks about some great things that happen in there. You know, the mindset about um, how I devise some of these flies and the situations and the problems I was solving on it. And it covers the gamut of dry flies, wets, nymphs, and streamers. So it's not just all streamers. I, I said this before, um, even though I'm completely fine with it because I'm very passionate about streamer fishing, the beauty of trout, and I've kind of hold myself as a guy that's pretty well-rounded. I can fish in a lot of different disciplines and I still enjoy targeting fish on dry flies as much as I like fish and streamers. I was just out there before we got the high water. Yeah. Most guys do. I mean, most guys yeah. like the dry fly guys are just streamer guys. It's just a lot of it. Yeah. You know what? I've, I don't really nymph anymore. Um, I had a period in my life where I nymphed a lot. I got really into it. Um, I don't do it anymore. It just, it's a personal thing. I, I got to a point where I'm like, you know what? It's not a numbers game for me. Uh, I've, and especially with some of the, not to digress, but some of the tactics that we get into nowadays where I've, I, everybody has a line that they want to cross. So they, they cross where they say, oh, am I still fly fishing or not? And I think nymphing has gone so far in one direction now where I don't even feel like it's fly fishing. So I like to cast flies, like to cast dry flies, like to cast streamers. So, and I'm fishing fly line. That's what it's about. But so back to the book, um, my heart and soul onto that. When I look back at when I did that book at the time of my life, I don't know how the hell I did it. I really don't. It was a huge monumental task. I know me and Matt talked off air about writing and I, I, um, I'd done a bunch of articles. You mentioned John Randolph in one of your pa uh, past uh, podcasts. This is the first person I ever uh, did an article with um, was in Fly Fisherman. Yep. And uh, he kind of John was an amazing guy. He's, he was writing a book now, sorry to interrupt. Um, uh, the golden era. I think he completed yep. it last uh, December. I was talking to John quite a bit, um, introducing him to my hollowed waters. And, um, but he, he did a, a, a big documentary, I think like 400 page book on um, that whole golden era. So yeah, he published my first article. Nick Lyons was my guy that, that got me going and, and edited my stuff. But those, that was part of that golden era. And I think just quickly for me to inter, to interject here, we lost that passion. And that's, I think, what said you you got turned off by what's going on a lot today because it's faster, bitter, bigger, quicker, more, you know, this, that. And people really see through it. They really want integrity. And that is what, that's why I'm so pleased that um, the viewing audience that I'm getting out of these things is the the hope in the future is the younger people and they, they do want to read. They do. It's not all YouTube stuff. It's younger people do read. And um, so, yeah, that, that's just a quick interject on that, but go ahead. There's a lot of value there, you know, and, and listen, I, I, um, you know, back to my other career, I had the ability to, it was a juggling act. I mean, I was doing guiding or commercially tying and a full-time law enforcement career, which I know I, I got some slack from some of my friends in the industry that were full-time, you know, guides, industry professionals. Oh, I'm not a part-time guide. I used to get that, you know, and this whatnot. And I, I think, Hey, I get it. I totally understand. I'm not 
trying to step on toes or whatever, but this is what I like to do and I'm doing it. Right. So I looked at it from like, you know, the whole perspective of, you know, balancing all of that stuff. And part of my job in my career, I was involved in a teaching aspect. I was actually fortunate enough. Yeah, I had a great career. I had the ability later in my career to be a teacher and I got to influence some people that went out into the field. And I used a lot of those teaching skills that I garnered, which helped me with doing presentations and teaching fly fishing. So you have to look at things. I, I still think there's huge value in books. Um, but I also see now, and, and it's the society we're in now, Matt, I mean, everything's fast paced. I saw it with my teaching where you have to basically hit on all the different avenues of how people learn. You know, some people are very tactile, right? Other people's, they listen, other people are visual. You have to hit on all that. So, you know, YouTube and that stuff has a place, but I, I think overall you need to have a little bit of everything, right? So a book, if it's well-written and it's well-illustrated or it has good photos, you know, it, it can really get the message across as to what you're trying to convey. Right. So for fly tying, and it was hard for me too, because I'm not, I, there was no professional photographers taking my photos. <laughs> I had to kind of learn that stuff, you know? Um, but my big thing was, you know, in some of those fly patterns in there, there's exponentially numbers and numbers and numbers of photos to show each step, but I wanted those steps and those pictures to stand alone. You know, there's some great fly tying books out there, but they try to confine every step of whatever's in that particular pattern into X amount of photos. And when you're dealing with complex patterns sometimes, because a few of the flies that are in there are a little more complex, a lot of stuff can get lost in translation in the mix, right? So yeah. I wanted to make sure that that book could stand on its own, you know, and yeah. it was it was a labor of love. I'll probably write a few more again at some point. I'm, I'm kind of starting to get the bug again, but see, I'm inspiring you, hopefully. I hope so. You know, I mean, I, I feel like that's my way of giving back. So we'll see, you know, it's been a great sports and a lot of good things for me. So. Yeah. And um, yeah, it, it was a great book and, and um, Stackpole and, and Jay had done a phenomenal amount of great books and there's a new book out that he just published uh, Rick Kostich's new book, um, his new spay book, um, spay casting book. It's, it's another perfect thing. So yeah, there, there's been a lot of great books I think my our frustration is sometimes we're we're taking it to the dumb it down level too much and uh and I don't think uh people want dumb it down anymore. I think people want 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 the depth and they want what used to be and I look back and uh, look at the great books of the 80 of the 70s and the 80s and I'm stuck in the 70s and 80s. I'm a romantic warrior. I am a Don Quixote chasing windmills and um basing the you know that's where this sport was, and it should be. And um, that's what I'm trying to do with hollowed waters. By the way, we are millimeters away from getting hollowed waters to book status and hard copy print. So be patient with us. And Rich's wonderful book, Chasing Shadows. No, it's Casting Shadows, I know, but I keep saying Chasing Catching. Shadows. Catching, catching shadows, catching and chasing and casting shadows and catching shadows. All, all three C's. Uh, it, it's there and it's available on, um, on, uh, on, on, um, Amazon and also, uh, another shout out. Yeah. So I, I shout out about Rick Kustich's great new book, uh, on spay and then, um, which is published by Lions Press and Stackpool and which now is Lions, um, 
Lions Press, um, which is part of Roman and Littlefield. Uh, and a uh, great company, great books. Um, they have a wonderful person, Maura Cahill, that uh, does a lot of great marketing for them. So they, they have a great team there. And also uh, uh, my favorite author, a uh, murder mystery author, Charles Cutter, has a new book, Under the Ashes. It's about, it's about mushroom hunting and a, and a murder mystery that took place that was it the more bad morale mushroom that he ate or was it somebody that poisoned him? So, so many great books. Anyways, let's get into uh, reading water and fishing water and provoking. Um, so, you know, in my Nexus book, I, I wrote a little bit about different facets of the streamer hunt and Kelly's books are the last, his, his number two, um, uh, Modern Streamers Hunting Part Two is just a masterpiece. And he breaks it down even more so into, into, I mean, the guy's the doctor of the thing, but I look at it like four different facets. I look at it, the provoking game, um, the territorial niche, predatorial strike response by habitat. I look at it as um, individual head hunting, stalking individual fish, like on spring creeks or big rivers where you know they are. I look at the bait fish hatch as another facet. And then I look at spawning aggression as another fourth facet. But, um, you know, so, as as the uh, as the hydrodynamic currents and flows of the rivers interact with structural components, predatorial ambushing points, and the and the and the brown trout's dominant and became because of these unique fusion areas, the bottom strata, shoreline profiles, mainstream obstacles are the are the diversity each river has as its uniqueness. It is these unique features uh, that blend together to form the perfect tonic for the big brown trout hunter and you know wooded wooded debris sweepers. Um, all these perfect large boulders and rock pots and buckets, all these perfect Leviathan brown condos, islands, side channels, create a fusion of divergent flows merging together to form a seam, are perfect places to start for looking for these ambushing points. This is the provoking game that we talk about. This is the blind casting. We're, we're, we're trusting in our fly. We're having faith in our, you know, what we do. Uh, and all these places that we learn to read are these, you know, these, these uh, pinpoints, these trigger points that, that these fish um, will concentrate on. And if you believe and, and you have faith, uh, you're going to get these strikes. And um, it's all about the casting and the stripping. And meanwhile, the potential for provoking and agitating, you know, aggressive predatorial strike responses are always there. So whether it's wall banging or reading water or, you know, targeting back eddies or gravel rollers or, tributary mouths or seams and drop-offs, they all enter into this equation. So you're provoking game, your thoughts about that and, and reading water, Rich. Wow. We could talk about this for days, my friends. I know. But <laughs> we have to talk about it. You so know, to- um, I guess I, I like, I really like to just pick apart water and, I, and it be, it's done it so much now where I feel like it's kind of become second nature to me. Um, you know, a big part of, you know, especially when you're fishing the way that we do, you're covering a ton of water and you're constantly moving, whether you're on foot or you're in a boat. And if you're on foot, I think that's the one thing that hangs people up is they just park themselves in a spot and continually beat the water to death. If you're in that mentality, the first thing you need to change is that. And then you want to cover space. So, um, you know, the reading water is not just... I think this is probably one of the hardest things for trout anglers when they're new to this to grasp. And it doesn't matter what style you fish. 
it could be wet flies, dry flies, whatever. I mean, dry flies, you can see where a fish is feeding if there's a hatch going on, right? So it's a little more evident, but when there's nothing going on, you know, it might become problematic trying to figure out where the fish are, you know, S- same thing when you're nymphing, right? Um, I, I am a big, uh, I, I talk about this a lot with people when we're out on the water and I know there, there's, this is going to come up again later, so I won't dive completely into it, but you have your overall vision and your periphery vision. So streamer fishing, if you're doing this to become effective, it's you're constantly setting up that next play right? It's kind of like a football coach. All right. We're on the first down. This is the play we're going to run. But if this is what happens then my second play is this for second down, right? All right. So I'm always, it's just like rowing a boat. When you're looking down the river, you're looking at obstacles. If you're just, it's like, uh, I guess the best way I could explain this, because I taught some emergency driving was when you drive a vehicle, you don't stare at what's right in front of the hood, do you? Right? No, because you want to see the big picture. Right. So the things we talk about when we drive are, you know, um, avenues escape, uh, line of sight. Um, what's the other one? It's line of sight and uh, opportunity to exit. So what are my avenues? Avenues, of exit, line of sight, what's in front of me. Right. So it's the same thing when you're fishing. So you want to have an idea of what's going on in front of you, but you want to be able to see the big picture. So I think that doesn't just extrapolate to the water. That can be topography on the stream side. So I'll give you an example. Um, it's really easy to figure out if you walk into a piece of water, I get this question a lot. Hey, I walk into this piece of water, I don't even know where to start throwing my streamers, where to fish. You know, obviously there's a path that's worn there where everybody walks in and most guys will stand right here and they walk right to the same spot because they know at the head of this riffle, if I have run my nymphs right here, I'm probably going to catch some fish, right? So, but I'm looking at it from a streamer perspective, you know, I'm going to look at the topography. Okay. So one thing that it can channel. So if the land on one side of the river, and it's easier to see from a broader perspective, as opposed to just being right on top of a pool. But if on, let's say, if I can paint this picture for you guys, the right-hand side of the river, if you look at the topography from where the water's edge goes into the wood line is relatively flat and level, high probability that that water's shallow right there. Right. As opposed to, let's say, the left bank might have, you know, it comes down off of a slight uh, incline. There's a mountain there or something, right? So it abruptly drops down into the water. There's probably a higher probability that there's more depth over there. Then now you extrapolate that out to the river itself. Look at where the current's being pushed, right? So it's like looking at current seams. Take a look at that current seam. All right, well, it looks like, yeah, I got some depth over here because, you know, it abruptly drops off to the stream edge, but though the bulk of the water and the moving water is up against that bank, right? So that's where a predominant part of my flow is. So I look at a lot of these things, big picture, small picture, right? Um, and every river is a little different. You might have some rivers where the fish set up. They're really, really set up on color changes. Color changes are huge. You know, you might have a substrate of sand or gravel that turns into on the edge of that. It might be darker because, you know, maybe there's some, a weed edge there, a line, or you've got some sort of algae or there's more rock and a depth change, or you've got shelves, you know, you have a shelf that runs 45 degrees to the, to the current, or it's perpendicular to the stream edge. Those are things I look at, you know, then you have in-stream structure. You could have stuff that can be submerged. It can be partially exposed. That rocks, for example, you talked about wood map, you know, 
Um, you might have a downfall and all this stuff changes. So your rivers, you know, I fish a lot of different places. I fish all over New England, across the country. I like to travel and fish because I think it makes me a better angler. Um, but I will say this, not everybody has that luxury. So my thing is your home stream, pick a few pools, fish them all throughout the season under different conditions, because every time you go out there, we have the luxury now of figuring out what the flows are, you know, what the weather's going to be practically down to the minute, all those things change. That environment changes under all those things. Your fishing lies and where those fish are based on certain flows, et cetera, uh, weather changes, habitat changes, that all can kind of fluctuate. So it's kind of like a constant moving uh, grid to a degree. But I think back to what we're saying, you know, I base my days on patterns. You know, where I'm always thinking, all right, well, I'm fishing a stretch of water, I'm on the move. Boom, I pick up a fish here. I'll stop and think about it for a second. Then I keep fishing. I, you'll start to notice you're targeting fish in those same areas. And then, then I'll devise a plan. And um, back to reading the water, there's so many things that if my feeling is this, you know, I know I heard you talk to, uh, I brought up Deck Hogan's name, and you talk, started talking about all the scientific stuff with fish. I just go out and fish. So I cover a lot of water. Um, and then I kind of extrapolate it from there. If it looks good, my feeling is pitch a fly in it, see what happens. Exactly. So wonderful. Sorry, I got a little winded there. No, that's you, you <laughs> that's what I wanted from you, sir. Um, so the next phase I look at is head hunting individual browns. And I I did a lot of that um in on spring creeks and on smaller water and on a more intimate water. You probably do it on the Farmington and um you know, in, in that scenario, and I, I'm going to use a little quote out of my book, um, in, in this scenario, it's important to study the habits of the fish and its predatorial pursuits. They remain dormant in their lunker condos until the urge to feed comes about. If they capture a large prey, they could go on for several days without ingesting food. Thus, they seem to have disappeared, and which is often the case when they are not seen. Uh, once the, the satiation diminishes and, and are back to their hunting behavior and leaving their lies at certain times, predating at night and early mornings, have distinctly in sunlight, darkness, photophobic periods that pineal glands and optic systems revolve around, they, they become back on the hunt. So basically what it comes down to is hunting individual fish is to know your enemy and to know what this, uh, to conquer your enemy is to know your enemy and to know their habits and to study it. And I used to walk, for days on the Latorte and Mossy and knowing where fish were. And I wouldn't even take my rod with me. Um, I would, I would sometimes take a poking stick and look in their condos and see where they were. And sometimes I would just watch them come out and feed. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's, if people like to turkey hunt, people like to, you know, hide in blinds and deer hunt, this is for you. And that's a whole other facet of the game rather than just, you know, bank, you know, bank pounding and, and, and wall banging and, and just constantly stripping. So there's a different facet of that. Have you done much individual hunting, Rich? Yes. So, you know, the one thing, and I, Tommy might've used this terminology. So if I'm stealing it from him, I'm going, I'm, you know, I apologize, buddy, but, um, you know, finding area codes, you know, when we fish this way, the beauty of this style of fishing, especially, whether I'm in a boat for a day or I'm on foot and I'm covering water, 
if I have a day where even the fish might not be 100% on, I might be rolling or turning fish, I'm typically finding area codes. And usually you'll find area codes of some of your better fish. So the beauty of that is, is in every season it changes, you know? So you can go out there and find locations of some of those better fish. And then you'll actually, you can start to kind of track some of their movements. You know, they might take up a different lie within, I don't know, I'm just throwing this out there arbitrarily. It could be a couple hundred feet on a specific piece of water. When it's a certain flow, that fish might be in this particular lie. It might slide somewhere else because it's, it's more comfortable. It's an easier place for it to feed. Right. So once I gather those uh, area codes and this happens every season, it was funny. I, some of the places I like to fish, the ones, especially that get a lot more pressure. I fish them a lot more now in the off seasons in the shoulder months where they get less pressure. And I, that's where I obtain a lot of my area codes. And, you know, I'll come through there with some of my, my couple of my close friends I fish with and like, yeah, we get the area code of a good couple good ones today. So, you know, maybe we catch one, maybe we don't, we'll, we'll go back and we'll target that particular area. And sometimes when the water recedes, you can do it on foot. Right. So it, it is really hunting. And I think that's kind of the allure because it, it allows, it gives you the opportunity to search and find some of those places. And you can start to learn a, little, a great deal about where some of those prime or apex lies are for some of those better fish in a fishery. So I, I think this is, this style of fishing is probably one of the best ways to do that. Um, it kind of hits on that. If that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So let's go into, um, Let's let's go on to that the bait fish hatch. So we've all experienced the bait fish hatch. I first experienced it on on the on the on the Catskill on the on the Delaware on the West Branch when they were spilling so much water. I think it was in the summer of two thousand and two or two thousand one, two thousand and four actually, and they yep. had all the gates open and. The Delaware was flooded a couple of weeks before the fish were delicately sipping, you know, spinners, uh, sulfur spinners, eighteens, twenties, and and just deceiving the hell out of your head and uh and just you know you're scratching yourself going down to 7x and 6x and and just playing the game the 1820 game and then a week later they were hunting um alewives in the backwaters cuz New York reservoirs have alewives from the great lakes and uh and it was a crazy game it was nuts i think one day well, we actually hooked i'm going to say probably over 15 fish in the 20 inch range and, and was just stupid. And they was, these were these super ultra selective brown trout that are just impossible to catch that just went crazy into a hunt mode like bass that just wouldn't stop eating everything. And uh, you have the same scenarios on the TVA and the Tennessee Valley authority rivers, the clinch, the Holston, the white, the Arkansas, I mean, the white, and then uh, out West, it happens occasionally also. Um, what is your experience with that uh, scenario, Rich? What was your first experience? Um, I've got several. I mean, I, I can't relate to the first time it probably happened, but I, I can relate to what you're talking about in Delaware because I've experienced that there. I'll, I'll keep it kind of local. Um, our local tailwaters, we don't have alewives in, in some of our impoundments, but we have smelt. And right. if you have a high water event in the spring that coincides when the smelt run, it can force those fish into the, into the watershed. I've found six, seven inch smelt swimming 10, 12 miles downstream of our impoundment that have been kicked loose out of the, the lake. 
um, and the fish get on them. It, it's one of those things. It's you heard me talk about this before. Um, I, I throw little tidbits out there. Change when you have a change in what's going on, you have to kind of be aware of it and adjust accordingly. So the change is the water's gone up. You got to spill out of the dam, and now we have this influx of food, and it makes those fish. It, it changes their feeding behavior and their pattern, and it becomes more of a you talk about selectivity with bugs. It's the same thing, but now you're talking with larger food items. So it can be, it can be spectacular fishing. You can put numbers of large fish you don't typically tangle with on a regular basis and higher numbers of them in the net. Um, but I will say this, that too can change because once word gets out that those fish are in the system and more and more. Very, very them, good point. Very, very they good. They get very, they get onto it. So you have to change your tactics a bit. You know, in the beginning, it seems like if you've got something remotely close in size or silhouette and even remotely close in color, it, they're going to eat it. Right. Um, but as, as they get tuned to, it's like if you catch the same fish over and over again, they're going to kind of get wise to it. Right. So, you know, you might have to alter your tactics a bit. Um, but you know, those are situations that people who are passionate about what we're talking about, like you live your life where I base my seasons around stuff like that, you know, is, are those yeah. days where, you know, I can try and replicate a situation like you just explained, Matt, where you caught 15 fish over 20 inches on a day, you know, like those are like days of legend and lore. And, you know, yeah. you, you might go several seasons before you see that again. I might never, I'll never see that again. I know. Yeah, you might not. You know, I, I, I mean, no perfect way. example. Uh, one of my favorite stretches of river on not the Farmington that I like to fish. It's a free stoner, the Housatonic. It go, it is basically, you know, it, everybody associates that river as a strict put and take. It gets stocked fish. Absolutely. It's a phenomenal smallmouth bass fishery, which is a whole other avenue of, we won't even get into but it has some wild brown trout in it. And the real ones that are there are like those unicorns or like that needle in a haystack. And every season we'll put a few good ones in net and some years it's better than others. And the holdover fish there can do well, but it's all environmentally based. If we have a hot, dry summer, those trout suffer over there because there's no cold water influence other than what's in that big river, right? So my good friend, Greg, who fishes with me quite a bit now, our daughters play sports together. Uh, in the last few years, Greg was, uh, he's a Pennsylvanian, and I'll hold it against him. You know, he likes the nymph and all that stuff. Didn't really stream. Why do we always correlate dirty nymphing with Pennsylvania? I got, I got to put the little dagger Be nice in there. to those guys in Pennsylvania. Yeah, they know. I'm friends with a lot of them. But Just I because they got to the fish for stock trout all the time doesn't mean. <laughs> so. You know, Greg, Greg had never fished out of a drift boat before or a raft. I said, well, you're going to be in for a treat. And, you know, I take him through a section of, of this massive watershed that's pretty near and dear to my heart. And, uh, you know, I told him, I said, you know, the Housatonic can be very fickle. We, we might do all right. We might step in it. You never know. Well, there's this one specific spot that we fished and in a, within 100 yards and we got out of the raft and we, we waited it. He caught five fish that day between 20 and 23 inches, all browns, stripping those sculpins that I like. And I tried to tell him, I said, Greg, I go, I got to be honest with you. I haven't seen this particular run fish like this good in 15 years. And all of these fish were just absolute specimens, right? Sure. And it was funny, you know, <laughs> the next time we went out and we had a banner day and if 
goes into conditions and all this other stuff. If we get the time that we'll talk about that. But the next time we went out this later that week and uh, you know, the, the flow, had changed. It was a much, a little bit higher, you know, the river was still a little bit on the rise and uh, we're like, you know, in the, the first hundred yards of our float that day, I can't tell you how many trout and bass he caught in the first hundred yards. Right. Well, this time it was a completely different story and we were about a mile into the float and he finally caught a brown and it was a 17 inch brown which is a nice fish right it's not a big what he was catching last time that float was ridiculous but he kind of like he kind of threw it some shade and didn't take it too seriously and like kind of shook off before the net like oh well you know we're going to do better than that and I looked him right in the face and I said that might be the only brown trout you catch today and he kind of looked at me like with the you know the rabbit ears like what did you just say and it was that was the only trout he caught all day you know, so, <laughs> you know, there's a, uh, you know, I kind of digressed, but you know, it's it, it, those, all that stuff changes, you know, beautiful, man. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And then the final phase, you know, spawning aggression, uh, we're not, con- we are not condoning please and do not fish the spawning fish or even near their areas where they spawn and you should not even go there. You're higher disciples of the, of the streamer savagery bite. And, uh, so you please do not, but th- there's a, very brief period at the end of summer going into early September prior to the, you know, middle September. And then they go on to spawn usually by October. Um, And that little period is a very aggressive point where these fish are moving into their spawning areas. They're still far away from it. You could do it on big rivers. You could do it on spring creeks, you could do it on fusion rivers. And that's that time end of summer. They have to withstand a lot of periods where they couldn't feed because the water was a too warm or their metabolism was way bordering on almost death. If the water's hitting 70, so they slink out, they get hungry all summer because there's a lot of periods they can't only feed only at nighttime usually. And they get into that spot mode where aggression is changing. Their pineal gland is changing their sexual hormones. The hormones are changing the desire to eat prior to spawning to evolutionary support their lifestyle, which they have to pack on weight before they spawn because they're going to lose probably 60% of their body weight when they do spawn. So there's a period that you can catch them. It's, it's a big bite in Montana before the Brown spawn, big bite on the East coast, big bite on little tiny creeks, like the tort in that early window, early September when that happens. And that's a good bite, but we're not going to talk a lot about that because we don't want you to focus on that. But that spawning aggression is very important. It's territorial driven and it's, it's uh, the buck putting his horns out. But uh, finally, I just want to talk a little bit about old school uh, shank style sculpting. And I did a lot of this on spring creeks in the Cumberland Valley on Mossy, but you know, at shank um, received his inspiration for his marabou flies. He used in junior high school, you know, his fleeter mouse streamer tied by Bill Schneider, a Western angler influence Ed's chewy flies concept, the chewy fly concept of how the trout like to hold into their marabou and muskrat fur and chew on the fly before spitting it out. I don't know if that's really fact, but that's what Ed said it was going on with the deer hair spun head concept launched by the muddler minnow shank, put all these together for the deadly shank sculpting um, the Latort and Montana can't resist. And these are little quotes that I'm taking out of my Nexus book, but um, I experimented with three different versions of Ed's techniques um, to imitate the natural. So if you look at the natural sculpting, 
Sculpin hides be behind rocks, hides in little areas. It it swims about and dives back down like a bomber, like a sunken submarine. Swims about, darts back down. Swims about, darts back down. It's that hop, skipping, jumping motion. And we try to do that with our streamer stripping and our jigging motion. But most of the time we're fishing, you know, we're fishing patterns that are imitating more bait fish than sculpting. Even though they have sculpted heads, sculpins really behave kind of weirdly. They dive under a rock, they pop back up, they swim about a little bit, they dive back down. So I, I, I experimented with different techniques. I casted it upstream. Um, and, and this was um, this was mainly on, on the streams. Uh, all my buddies there, Neil and Saguski and Naguski and uh, Tommy and those guys fish and Eric um, all on the, all on the Latort. And um, I, I, what I would do is I casted it upstream. I let it sink in slowly like a helpless prey and pump the rod and line strip and occasionally bouncing, jigging off the bottom to imitate the bouncing and resting sculpin. By keeping a tight line, you had direct contact with the flying able to set it up or on the take for the grab. Another version was using a cross stream uh, cast. You could swim the fly above the targeted area if where you spot the fish and resting it and twitching it off the bottom in front of the nose to trigger a reactive compulsive take. And then uh, one of the final one was I would uh, I would uh, uh, do the crawfish crawl like Ed Shank did a crawfish crawl, and where he would find a sandy patch channel and gravel area and twitch um, the fly pattern in a designated line like a crawfish stirring the bottom, and he would just basically strip it along the bottom, and it was it was kind of cool. So these are different methods to try to imitate the baitfish the way the trout is seeing it, not the way we want it to be seen, not the way we think it should be seen because they're looking at baitfish differently from sculpting. And, and it's, it's a whole different program. Any thoughts on that, Rich? Yeah. I mean, you couldn't have articulated it any better. I mean, I, everybody kind of knows you've said it, the sculpting pattern that I fish, the headbanger, which I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, the idea and the concept with these helmets was something that Roman Moser was the one who popularized these and Flyman yeah. Fishing Company brought them to the States in right. a different perspective. So Roman is wonderful. Roman is, let me just interject really quickly. Roman is a God of Europe and Roman was so instrumental in helping me with my selectivity book. Roman, if you're out there, if you're listening, uh, hope you're well, uh, but man, you were such a tremendous influence. I know you were a tremendous influence for me. You were a tremendous influence for, uh, What's his name from New Jersey? Oh, Jasper was a big, big fan of yours. And uh, you did so much from nymphing to streamers to dry flies. But anyways, go ahead, Rich. 100%. I mean, his concept with those um, flat metal heads and weighted heads are what kind of give this whole style to fish something that's going to replicate, you know, how a sculpin behaves. They, like you said, Matt, they're a very unique um, bait fish. They don't have a swim bladder. They're very bottom oriented. And I completely agree with what you were saying before. A lot of these sculpin style flies are fished mid water column, which is not even where those fish reside in the water column. I think more of that sculpin style head and, and something that's tied with deer hair is more, I think there's more um, behind that whole acoustic footprint and how it pushes uh, shock waves through the water than anything. But right. back to this, you know, what you explained and how you fish those. When I'm on foot fishing streamers, because I'm not completely boat uh, centric, I fish a lot on foot in a lot of the places that I go, you know, th this, that style and getting that scope and in, in down near the substrate 
and fishing it in a manner that looks relatively similar to how those sculpins behave that, you know, darting, you know, hopping off the bottom or, you know, up and down motion. That's a very deadly tactic that you, you explained. And that's kind of primarily how I fish these, you know, and it's typically, I mean, you couldn't have said it any better. A lot of upstream presentation, maybe a slightly longer leader than you're typically using floating lines, you know, keeping contact with it and moving it through the water column on the bottom. Sometimes those fish are really pinned into those areas and those feeding lines, especially when the water is colder. Um, there's a few other places in the Northeast that I fish where, you know, a lot of the neutrally buoyant, uh, you know, sinking, integrated sinking line setups don't work very well because you're dealing with water that's got high gradient pockets. You need something that's going to penetrate. And those fish, there's big browns there. You know, a lot of people go to some of these places and they won't catch any fish and they think they're not there. They're there. You just need to get your fly in an area where they think they're going to be able to see what you have. And you'd be shocked at what's in some of these fisheries. So, you know, a fly of that nature gives you the ability to get your get it into that zone and fish that particular area of the, the water column that you might not be able to get down into with that other setup. Um, those lanes, same thing. If, you know, and the nice thing about with a fly that's tied in that manner, that's got weight to it, it's inverted. So your hook points are up, they're not down. There's a higher probability or less a probability that you're going to hang bottom because let's face it, when you're fishing flies and streamers that are in close proximity to the bottom, you know, losing them and hanging up is a, is reality. It's going to, it can happen. So you want to stack the deck in your favor there. So those sandy stretches that, you know, I, this is the time of year, the water temps are getting like ideal for trout and their metabolisms get moving. Any of that water fishes and this style fishes well. Um, when we start dealing with colder water situations, you know, that's that scenario you gave where, you know, he, he would shank would look for stretches where there was a sandy bottom that ran down the center of a pool. Right. That's a very viable winter tactic, yeah. you know? Um, and you're still, you know, that guy, Max, I talked to you about who I had on the river last fall, right. you know, he was just amazed that everybody thinks that when the water gets colder, you need to slow your, slow your retrieves down. And, you know, there's a big misconception with moving water. If you're not moving fly line and moving water, you're not going to be in contact with that fly and you're not going to be able to impart any motion to it, especially when you're fishing upstream. So if you're fishing upstream and the line and the water's coming down at X speed, your line is coming back at you at the same. So you have to do big pulls to get any kind of movement and to stay in contact with your fly. So, you know, if you're, if, unless the fly is downstream of you and across and down, you know, then it turns into basically a swing, a slight swing. And it's almost like doing a hand twist retrieve if your strips are small because you're really not imparting much movement to it so i think you, you have to kind of separate the two but i digress once again um amen 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 and we are going to take another break because we have still a lot more to cover and uh this is turning into a mega thon mega podcast on but it hey we're having fun and i hope you're enjoying it and uh we will be right back we are talking streamer savagery and the evolution revolution with streamers with uh, the magnificent Rich Strollis. We'll be right back.
Able Reels have been the pinnacle of real technology for, for decades now. Since Steve Abel, aerospace engineer, started the company in California, their technology and their manufacturing, the drag systems are simply impeccable. Um, they work to perfection and everything they do is just a piece of art, including their art design on their real systems. Uh, they're beautiful artists that they have in these series of all the different trout, salmon, steelhead, saltwater fish, uh, utilizing technology with beauty and incorporating designs by Derek DeYoung, Larco, Underwood, other people are simply the state of the art. What's so cool is when you take a picture of a fish, like I often do with Atlantic salmon and brown trout and hold my reels up against them, it's just beauty in the hand and beauty in the fish. Uh, and it just totally relates to the whole experience of why we fly fish and why we love what we're doing. Um, so please look at Able Reels next time you're looking at a large arbor reel and, and look at the difference and look at the quality, the workmanship, another USA made company that gives each reel a hand touch and they're boutique made reels, especially the paintings. If you opt for the designs, which can be pricey, but if you're looking for that special gift for someone or you're trying to treat yourself, Able Reels are the way to go. Contact Jeff Patterson and Able and you will never be disappointed in an Able product. Most of you think of Orvis as a trout rod and a real company. Uh, I've known them for many decades and I had my first Orvis rod, graphite rod, when I was a teenager, using up my hard-earned paper route money uh, to, to buy one. Um, they have been known so much for what they do in the trout world and their stuff is outstanding, made in Vermont uh, for, for since the, the days fly fishing really started in this country. And um, but, but they've gotten serious with their spay uh, activity and lately um, uh, Combs uh, and the rod designers um, got together and say we're going to be taken seriously in this market and they came up with the Orvis Mission uh, two-handed series. Uh, I was blown away when I got my first Orvis two-hander and I took it to uh, to Iceland and I was just just overwhelmed by how well it competed with the other rods that I had with me, the Sages, the G. Lewis's, the Berkheimers. Um, they put in some serious technology in these rods. Uh, the beauty of them, the handles, the, the grips, the the, the the whole the whole package is just simply amazing and um, they are now a force to be reckoned with in the spay market and you should definitely look at the mission series next time you're going to purchase the rods they're 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 very affordable and they're beautiful in the hand and they feel just as good as the top line spay rod you could possibly imagine so visit orvis go to your orvis dealer to your fly shop that carries orvis and ask for the orvis mission give it a test run and look at it and you will be simply amazed how serious orvis has come into this very competitive spay rod two-handed market We are back and we're talking sculpinating and we're talking 
how our different flies, uh, we're going to get into color, we're going to get into high water, we're going to get into presenting the streamer from different locations, uh, marginal waters, a bunch of stuff. But um, so, you know, when you think about it, when you look at the, you know, the Kelly Gallup School, Sex Dungeon, you know, incorporating the, you know, I, we just got done talking about the way Shank was pre presenting his sculpins and how sculpins behave differently from bait fish. Um, Kelly's, you know, Sex Dungeon incorporated articulation, rubber leg movements, Shank sculpin, head spun deer, everything that was that whole air bubble school that Shank was about. And we always keep going to Shank because he was sort of the master that started this whole school. Um, and Kelly was basically doing a little bit of both with the V shape, with the head, kind of the head um, imitating sculpins and baitfish. When you look at Tommy Lynch, um, he, you know, he, he named his streamers to behave like a drunken stumbling, you know, bar guy that just walked out of a bar using a Dolver diver hammerhead motif, similar to digging motion of a, of a Rapala lure or a flatfish. His flies look like flatfish and the way flatfish dive. And then finally you have, you know, the double deceiver, you know, the west, the east coast baitfish streamer motion of bucktail saddle hackle that, that emulated the streamer, you know, in that swaying motion in the current that just swayed. And so this was kind of all kind of different. Um, but, you know, let's talk about clarity and flow of water. Um, you know, Lynch, Tommy doesn't believe in changing flies as often as Kelly does. So, you know, he has confidence in knowing that, that the fish are there. Um, you know, you just penetrate those niches in those buckets. Um, you know, clarity is everything, the way the fly looks to the fish, the colors that come through, um, you know, um, colors. How, how, do, how do you interpret colors, Rich? How do you look at colors based on, you know, high spring runoff and based on clear water conditions? Um, what's your take on color? Um, so I, I don't change flies as much as Kelly does either but I don't go to the extreme where I only fish one fly pattern. So I think you need to have a little bit of both. I, my thing with color is this. So, and I, I used to say this when I gave uh, talks on streamer fishing is, you know, you, you can take a look at my streamer selections at the end of a season, and that'll give you an idea roughly of what kind of water conditions I was predominantly faced with. So if I had high year, high water, you know, you're probably going to see my fly boxes and I, you know, I carry a, a one box that's just simply for flies that have been fished and they go in there so that I don't ruin my investment of all those nice tied streamers by putting a wet fly back in there. Right. So if you were to take that box and take a look at it and if it was a high water year and it was off color, probably be a lot of bigger silhouetted patterns in there. Um, more, more darker colors, maybe some bright ones in there or a combination of two. Um, you know, if it was a year where the water conditions were a little bit lighter, um, we were relatively normal. We didn't do a lot of high water. You'll see a lot of more earth tones. The flies might be smaller. And when I say smaller, they'll still be in that, you know, four to five and a half inch range, but I'm not going to see a, a anything much north of that size spectrum, like in that six inch or bigger. Um, my thing with color is, uh, you know, you have a lot of, over time, you kind of devise some basic ideas of what you think is going to work based on your water conditions. And, you know, there's some things that come into play with me that I look at a lot and it's light conditions. Number one, I look at water clarity. Those are two big things. All right. So you can have, 
you know, it's awesome that we have the ability to get on USGS for a lot of our fisheries and figure out what the flow is for that any given day. Some of them are more complex than just one um, gauge, you know, like you might have to look at a couple other tributaries if they have those gauges for them, because that's going to drastically increase or decrease my clarity. You know, water flow doesn't so much scare me. And I don't say that I'll go out there and fish during a flood, but I will fish in higher water conditions than most guys will. What I look at more or less is what that water clarity is, because if the if it's straight chocolate milk, then I'm going to need something that's going to have some sort of a silhouette. And the best colors for that are typically dark, like black, right? You know, whites are going to wash out. It's the same thing with glacier fed stuff. You know, I've, I fished a bit down in South America and in Alaska and, you know, a lot of those glacier fed rivers, you know, I see these guys that bring a lot of these washed out white colors and things of that nature. They just do not show up in that kind of water. You, you know, you're best off with dark blacks, browns, things of that nature. And that's what, even when there's low light, that light penetrates through the water and it casts a shadow that flies a bit visible. Um, Casting shadows. Yeah. You know, so there's some importance there. Um, I do like two-tone stuff too. I think two-tone gives you a contrast. So when you do have some clarity in the water, you know, if it is kind of a bit stained, I'm less apt to fish just a straight black or a straight brown. It might be something with multiple shades in it, you know, like these browns and oranges or brown and, uh, you know, maybe yellow, black and chartreuse, black and purple, some contrasting color, even black and white, you know. Um, but, you know, I I think um, that's where the color kind of comes in play. Kelly's got all these crazy theories and they all work. I think at any given time, you know, hey, lights at this level, we might go to a tan, right? And there's definitely some some food for thought and things that go with it. I'm more or less going to stick with, I think the color for me, from my experience and how I like to fish, it definitely has importance, but it's not way up here on the importance level. I think more or less of where is my fly in the water column in proximity to where I'm getting the most positive reactions from the fish that kind of comes into play. And that's where I think having, I break my streamers down differently I break them into three categories. I have my neutrally buoyant unweighted swim style flies, my heavily weighted flies that are going to be closer, can be fished in close proximity to the bottom. And then those transitional ones where they might have some weight, but not so drastic that they're going to have a heavy drop. Right. So, you know, so I, I I look at it like that. I think you're a little more well served to having some variety because on any given day, you know, you heard me talk, I think change is the biggest thing. So change in your conditions can dictate how your fishing is. I'll give an example. The other day I was out Monday. Um, we just had that crazy rain. You right. know, the river's running at like, I don't know, it normally runs at 250 to 300 CFS. It was like 1500 to 2000, right? So right. that really limits where I can fish. All right. Most people are like, it's too dangerous. Don't go out there. But there are places where you can find opportunity to fish. Now, find a side channel that diverts a fraction of the water. That might have a lot more water in it now. It always has some resident fish there and some better ones. They might be tougher to, to catch, you know, a couple of days earlier, I was catching really nice brown trout on Hendrickson's on the top in there. Had some guys that I was patterning, right? So I know there was going to be some decent fish there. Now, on Monday, the what ends up happening in our fisheries as we have two things that come into play. We have one spate river that dumps in a lot of nutrients, and then we have the main west branch, which covers, you know, there's a, two impoundments and they can control that flow. Well, typically what happens when they have too much water and there's nowhere to put it, 
as the Still River drops, they, the MDC and the Army Corps of Engineers increases the flow coming out of that reservoir, right? But it was so high, we had spill. So water's coming over, but they're also, as the still is receding, they need to put this water somewhere. So here's what happened. Go out, start my morning. I've got dirty water. And I say dirty, it's almost like bourbon colored, right? It's not super stained where you can't see anything. You still got feet of, feet of visibility, but it's enough to kick some of those better fish out of some of their lies and put them in positions where they might pounce on something bigger, right? So literally first cast, boom, 20, 21 inch size brown, beautiful. Release them, go. Fishing on the inside seam, right? Now, what unbeknownst to me, what ended up happening an hour prior to this, and I'm several miles downriver, so it needs time to catch up. As the still is receding and the clarity is getting better, the MDC kicked the flow up out of the dam. Right Now we have more cold water getting into there. So at some point while I'm fishing, I had about an hour's window of like lights out. Anytime I got into a position where I knew there was a soft edge or an inside seam or a sunken island and there was, there was fish behind it, I put a fly in there, they're eating it. But all of a sudden, something changed. And it was almost like it was an abrupt change. Now, I started noticing the fish were a little more lethargic. And it was like I, I couldn't quite put what was going on together at the moment. What ended up happening was the flow increased, the water temp came down a little bit, and now you're getting a lot of those like drive-bys, half, half-ass takes, I like to say. Not the, hey, boom, they, they're on it, they're eating it. So it didn't take till I got home after and I saw, oh, wow, the MDC just put on notice out. They increased the flow by oh, uh, almost half. So those fish negative, they, it changed the way they responded to it because there was a change in their environment. The pressure changed, right? The water pressure. So it put them off a bit. So yep. that's an example. Exactly. That was perfect. Thank you so much, uh, Rich. That was right on. You know, let's talk about now the strip and the jerk and the, and the cadence and the motion. Um, you know, Kelly's jerk strip is, was perfect for fishing streamers that had weighted heads, weighted mm -hmm. to a short leader system that allowed for the streamer to pause and slack and die in an undulating jigging motion. Tommy went to the, to the real short strip with the rod pumps down to get that fly to to short grabs pulsating his drunken disorderlies into a into a wobbly total motion on the tight line. Here he dives and works the the streamer as opposed to jigging and bouncing with you know the rip and strip uh, by you know but varying the speed, teasing the fly into different movements and pausing for crippled dead drifts, injured movements in conjunction can bring on that bite trigger violently into a predator. A brown senses that vulnerability in its prey, so. You know, that two that two-handed burn that Tommy does where the rod is put under the armpit and everybody's doing it now and, and rapidly retrieving the streamer triggers that ultimate predatorial aggression. It's that, you know, that childish, you know, that nah nah, you can't catch me, you know, here I am. And then all of a sudden a sudden drop and stop um really triggers that kill mode, but at the same time it could totally kill the bite. It, it, you know, one of the biggest common problems that people have is they, they see the fish coming, they see the fish coming and then they, Oh, I'm going to slow it down for him to take it. And then that there's a certain cadence in that predatory strike, whether it's driven by vibrations, whether it's driven by just the urge to grab, we see it on, you know, complex rises to a hopper on the surface where it just loses interest. And then it might turn around and gain interest again. Um, so, you know, in that strip mode are, you know, the dead drifts in occasional with fast stripping and jigging. There's so much going on there, but to kill the strike is our number one 
deadly sin that we usually do because there's a certain buildup. And I think it's derived from the neuromass in the skin of the lateral line that senses the vibrations, that those vibrations is a steady cadence that it just triggers this addiction that the fish has to, to have to nail it. What's your thoughts on that? As, I mean, I could talk on this one for a couple more hours. I don't know Other if there's this one here. <laughs> you know, that's a, that, that, um, I guess that technique that you're talking about too, it, there's a couple things we can hit on here first. So that, that burning, that two-handed burn, that's a thing that we borrowed from the saltwater world. I'm sure yeah. Tommy got onto that from uh, Mr. Sadati, you know, um, there's specific types of water that that works really good in. Um, you know, usually your hyper fast riffles where they have some boulders and pockets where you have some definite speed and, you know, the fish has to make a decision. It, it, am I going to come after this? You'd be shocked. I, I actually did that out on um, some of your water out there last winter or a year prior fishing a stretch with, um, with yeah. Dan um, from 1884 fly shop and erupted a massive Brown, but he completely missed the hook. So which can happen doing that. Um, you know, it, it's a trigger. It definitely works. It's it, you're essentially, and Tommy hit upon this last time you interviewed him and it, those fish get tunnel vision. Yep. So you're hitting on that sense. It's that predator prey thing. It's like playing with that cat with that mouse. So that cat tore that piece of string and you're trying to get a reaction and you can kind of see that fish is getting ready or that cat's getting ready to do the same, you know, it's devising a plan. Something's getting it all worked up and then boom, it strikes. It's the same thing with the fish. Um, you know, what ends up happening with that too, a lot of times, if you don't get, if that fish doesn't come true and hit that hook, you know, you can run out of real estate too. So, you know, I, I've seen fish come right up to the gunnel of the boat, you know, peck fins all flared out. And I mean, I have multiple visions of stuff like that happening. It, it definitely hits on that. Um, you know, the second part of what you're talking about too is, um, you know, you've got a fish, it's hot, it's tunnel vision, it's completely seen. I mean, I've seen really large fish, even on places like the Delaware, where people think, that's not a great streamer fishery, which I'd argue it can be um, a very good one. You know, these fish will travel 30, 40, 50 feet tracking your fly. They're just so honed in on it. A fish that normally is extremely wary has completely thrown its guard down because now it sees something getting away. And now it's, it's like I, that automatic response is I got to catch it. Right. And they'll, they'll completely not see anything else around them. And then sometimes they'll come to their senses and like, Oh shit. They'll snap out of it. Like somebody punched them in the face and they're like, well, well I, then they take off. Right. So, you know, um, back to kind of what you're saying, you know, you've got that reaction out of that fish and you're, you're, you've imparted a ton of motion into the fly. And then when you stop it, I mean, you see it when you fish flats for striped bass, I mean, you got a fish that's chasing your, your crab or your whatever your sand eel. And then if you stop doing what it's doing, they stop too. So they usually make a decision. So there's some things you can do. I know you, I'm pretty sure you had a question that was coming up, not to jump the gun on it, but this we might. Are. We do have one coming up. Yeah. Um, you know, another technique when the fish shows to the fly, but refuses to take it is, is, you know, you could tease it up again. I don't know if you're a big fan of teasing it up again. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but the fish lingers for a few seconds and it looks disoriented and it's sort of looking for something It's looking for something that it missed. You, you you tease it up, start stripping wild again, sudden pause and dead drifted immediate area. You know, all of a sudden you 
deal with this fish glued into the steel. He he's glued into it, but he's kind of confused. So do you, you rich, do you pause and wait and repeat again? You knowing, knowing that he's in that area. Uh, have you had much luck teasing it up while he's still circulating in that? Uh, I think it's here. No, maybe it's not there. No, maybe it's here. Maybe it's there. Um, oh, it could be on the other side of the boat. What, what's your, what's your, you know, you get that? those days where, um, you'll get those fish and you, you see this a lot when you're in a boat because you have a better window of, of vision into the water column, like where you'll get those days where those fish will chase, you'll get one that just appears out of the depths and, you know, he's chasing your fly, like what you're saying. And then you kind of run out of real estate or he takes a swipe. And as long as that fish doesn't feel the iron with trout more often than not, you have a, a probability or a percent of, of a likelihood that they'll come back and eat that fly. If they're still in that general area, you'll see them kind of duck out. So I will kind of try and play with them. I, my, my big thing is I like to convert. And I know Alex talks about this a lot and I completely agree with him on this. You know, there's a big difference between those people that get all those chases to the boat and those guys that can convert those chases into eats in close proximity. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I like that. It's a cat and mouse game. I really enjoy it, but it's not always successful. So it's one of those things where if you get a fish that comes in hot like that and he maybe misses your fly, you run out of real estate or your fly is still in the water. Some things you can kind of do is you can change direction with your fly, you know, a complete rod sweep, you know, it might even be, which goes completely against what we like to do. It depends on the water you're in too. Um, if yep. it's not as heavy, you can do this with an upstream change. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, one of the big things I remember when I was first starting to streamer fish as a kid is, you know, always continually at some point, because I wasn't aggressively fishing my line, my, my flies were always downstream of me. And right when that fly turned at the end and stopped, you'd always get like a hit. Right. And it was always because the fly was maybe changing angles in the water column or it just stopped. It came to an end. It's kind of like on the swing. They always tell you to keep your fly on the dangle. Right. Yep. Um, it's the same thing when you, you know, that things change when, if that fly that you're fishing close to the boat or close in front of you is still in the water. Um, I'll try that. I might pick up and if I can still see that fish, I might recast and drop it downstream of where that was or slightly upstream and then let it dead drift for a second or two and see if that fish comes back into vision. And then give it a quick little hit or a pull and see if they come. A lot of times what will happen is if you're fishing that fly back and that fish comes, you know, especially when you're trying to change your level of your water column with your fly, you know, if, if you do, uh, Jack talks about this. I learned this one from him. It's a great way. Everybody always thinks to get your fly down when a sinking line is throw a bunch of men's in there and whatnot. But it does work a little bit. But Jack's vertical jig and drop which Kelly talks about in his book too, is a great way to get yeah. your entire fly line in moderate pace water and your fly down so you can split the water column, right? So when you get that fly to bury, you basically jig your fly, slowly lower it, and your whole sinking head goes with the fly. And you can actually penetrate several feet in a matter yeah. of seconds with your line, as long as your line's perpendicular to the boat, right? Yeah. Or where you're standing. Yeah. As you're retrieving that fly back, it's coming up through the water column. Well, it's going to get to a point where it's in close proximity to you. If there's a fish behind it, a lot of times your guys talk about those fish that come rocking in out of nowhere, right in their window of vision, whether it's at their feet or the gun of the boat. And the reason why that fish just sped up and tried to take off and you're like, oh man, did you see that one? And they just missed them. That's because your fly did a couple of things there. It sped up and it changed its level in the water column. 
So it looks, you just, it basically triggered a response in that fish because he thinks that that bait is getting away. Like it's taken off. Right. Yep. So question, you know, I, I, I still think um, a lot of it is to do with the neural mess in a brown trout ladder lines vibrations, like a, like a shark. I mean, it's like he's, he's totally toned in on what is happening to him. So like a, you know, a brown trout and an Atlantic salmon, like I talk about in my next book, they're they're the same thing. They're salmon. They're same damn fish. They they want something they can have. Yep. They they love change. They love change in direction. That change in the direction on that broadside fly sweep is the trigger that they have. All of fly fishing has been based on that since the red fly has been cast in Macedonia when the Roman army witnessed the first fly fishing, when the Roman legions. It yep. was the broadside swing. You had rope tied to a, a a tree, to a sapling. The rope and the fly ran out of line. You didn't have a reel. You didn't have backing. And it ran out of line. When it ran out, it started to swing back to the point of origin, which is where you're standing. So everything comes off on that. If you could pull that off sometimes, you could, you could change a fish's attitude right away by just changing that direction or the swing with something that you probably shouldn't be doing, but you do it. Other thing is... You know, the kryptonite to the kill is stopping the strip. So we all know that that happens. We've we discussed that. But I think basically thinking outside the box, habituation, these fish get habituated. So you get 20 drift boats coming down your river. You got 20 drift boats coming down the white or, or, or white river boats. Everybody's doing the same thing. Everybody's fishing the same thing. Everything's doing the same thing. Habituation takes place. And the more you could get out of that habituation, maybe fishing something smaller or maybe fishing something bigger, or, or these things get dialed in quick to what you're doing. Habituation is that is really the kryptonite that's going to yeah, kill you. I would add to like back to what we we're saying, you know, back to how you were saying that whole vibration thing. I also think a lot of times I'm convinced that, you know, back to the sculpin, it, it's got a, 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 a very broad profile from that head on there. And that head on streamer fishing in the way that we, we, and me personally, how I like to fish these, I want to bring attention to my offering, right? So a lot of, even the neutrally buoyant flies that have a bigger footprint, but they're weightless. I have no, I actually want that. It's not like a dry fly presentation with 26 trichos. I want this fly. Hey, boom. I just slammed the door on your house. I want, I want to wake up whoever's home. Right? So a lot of times I'll see, and this happened the other day because of the conditions I had, I slapped that fly right into this zone, right off this island. And literally the second it hit the water, that wave went out. And all of a sudden this brown came out of nowhere and ambushed it. So I'm bringing attention to it. They feel that. It's an aggressive thing. If you start, I think what really the light bulb went off with me was when I really started fishing my flies a heck of a lot more aggressively, not being so worried about having a delicate presentation when they hit the water. Because there's going to be days when that is what wakes them up. And you're going to get that response. Totally. That's like, like hopper fishing, like beetle fishing in the summertime, splotting that hopper down, splotting that beetle down. So fish do respond to, to, to their, to their neural mass. And, and while I do, why do Browns hunt so well at nighttime? It's not because they got better vision. They're, they're photophobic. They don't really deal with a lot of light banners or they deal in the darkness because they, de- they love the darkness, but it's this sound, the vibration. It's not the mouse. It could be a large pteranarchus. It could be a snake. It could be whatever the hell you're throwing at them. Pattern means nothing at nighttime. It's all about how you're fishing it and vibration. That's the whole key. Um, 
let's talk about really quickly uh, two things. Um, uh, marginal water. Okay, so everybody thinks you have to fish blue ribbon water. You have to be up in the upper section where the fecundity is the best. And there's so much reproduction. Brown trout love are alpha predators that love marginal water. Why marginal water? Because marginal water is is eutrophic water. It's fertility. There's more bait fish in it. Brown trout will spend as much time in marginal water as they can. Um, you know, I was on your river one time and I said, I want to go down as far down as a trout has ever been heard to be caught on your farm. The river that starts with an F that was recently published in a fly fishing magazine. So the secret's out, right? Not, Not really. You- There's no secret. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, <laughs> so, you know, um, in my book, I said, you know, Bjorn Janssen summed it up scientifically. What is the mechanism? This is this is this is what he wrote. He said, "What is the mechanism behind density-dependent growth in rivers?" Newman, 1993, suggested that the fish are used the best foraging sites available, and as the density increases, the fish are focused focused to use less profitable areas. The reduction in growth was not due to decrease in the growth of all trout, but rather in an increase in the number of slower growing fish. Authors note, like on the rivers mentioned above, Barnas Baranas Al et al. 2004 found that an aggressive behavior was most beneficial at low and intermediate densities, and non-aggressive behavior was advantageous when foraging in high fish densities. Finstead et al. 2007 demonstrated that increased shelter measured as a depth of interstitial spaces in the substratum to explain 24% of the variance in growth performance, indicating that habitat quality influences growth rate. Basically what he's saying is that what we're saying that these guys like a lot of what, uh, where, where there is ability to grow and the opportunity to grow and the fish have the bait fish to do it. And they'll do drop down into these marginal areas and water after in winters, after they're done. Um, what's your thoughts on marginal areas? And I know you, I know you fish them. Cause when I was fishing your waters, somebody told me you were fishing one of those stretches way, way far down. Yeah. I, well, I think so. I let the cat out of the bag, rich. Okay. Let I mean, the there's no cat cats in the bag. bag. Sorry, Joey. <laughs> Joey uh, let the Joey. cat out of the bag. And by the way, Dan at 1884 Fly Shop, we love you. Hope you have a great trout opener this Saturday and hope you're listening. Okay, go ahead. It's um that marginal water is where you're going to find your best fish, especially browns too, because there's a usually there's a a much vaster and wider array of forage base. Um, usually there, there's so many variables that come into play there. I think those those trout, those browns that reside in those areas get so big because they're a heck of a lot more resilient. So I look at, I compare notes on different rivers. So if you take a tailwater, like the Farmington, we'll say, for example, and the Housatonic, which isn't a true tailwater, it's, it's got impoundments on it, but doesn't have bottom release influence, doesn't get cold. It has a much drastic and larger temperature swing window than the Farmington does. And you can see how that impacts positively and negatively against both different fish. Brown trout over on the Housatonic, which not to bust anybody's, uh, break anybody's brains or have them head explode, but I always laugh when I hear guys talk about the hatches on the Farmington. They are absolute amateur hour to what the Housatonic has. Anybody who fishes there will tell you. The bug life, the invertebrate, macroinvertebrates, crayfish, baitfish, it's not even in the same class as what's on that Housatonic. That's why you have a prolific smallmouth fishery and any of the brown trout that reside there that make it, they grow fast and they get big. All right. So 
And what's different there is the ones that do survive are a lot more temperature tolerant. You may see a 50 degree temperature swing on that river on any given year. Like last year is a perfect example. We, we, the season prior was fantastic for big holdover browns and some wild browns too. We had it looking like it was going to be a great spring because we had all this water. It was a mild summer. Usually that equates to a great fishery, a great next year. The spring started. It was awesome off to bam. Got some absolute stunner fish over there. Like you thought you caught these fish on the Delaware. Gorgeous, right? And guys wouldn't think they reside there. They're there. They're just, they're, they're like finding a needle in a haystack. That's kind of what I search for. But speed up, spring was fast. We had a hot summer, dry, no rain. That river suffered. But those fish still made it. And those fish on that river are conducive to what you would call that lower density, right? That, you know, marginal trout water. Those fish, I think, they find a way to survive. They grow more there, too, faster than they do in the Farmington. And people forget, people think the Farmington's an all-wild trout fishery. It's not. It's heavily, it's heavily stocked. Oh, heavily. It gets almost 50,000 like trout. In like the Housatonic, heavily. Yeah, I mean, heavily. I mean, it gets four times the amount of fish that Hoosie gets, you know? So that marginal trout water, brown trout, they're, you know, I mean, where, they're, where they came from, that's why they introduced them to this country is because they're a lot more resilient. They're more temperature tolerant. They can adapt to stuff. Those bigger fish, they're going to go into places. I see it even here on the heavily fish water. Those trout get out of high traffic areas. The best fish are not caught in the most heavily trafficked pools. Now that things are going, the hatches are going crazy, this river over here, most of your best fish get caught in a lot of the in-between water as in stuff that doesn't get trampled through. And sometimes that turns into marginal stuff that's way downstream, you know? Absolutely. So a lot to be said about that. There's a ton. Yeah. Uh, and we're running out of time, but there's a ton, you know, Leviathan brown trout are, are products of anglers upper end conditioning, the, the molding, we mold these fish and it's the constant angling pressure that shapes the types of follows and the strikes and the fish will respond to. So repeatedly mixing it up, you know, going from rip jerk uh, stripping and jigging and crawling and doing everything is, is the key. And, you know, on marginal water, you know, sometimes we, we talk about clan behavior and, and, uh, great guide friend of mine on the, on the white river talked about clan behavior, fish fishing off, uh, catching a lot of big Browns in certain areas of the river. And why should that happen? Should, since Browns should be unique individual creatures and hunters, but in wintertime, they drop down to, to marginal waters to hunt bait. And you'll run into a pot of a lot of bigger fish because big fish still stick together after spawn because of hormonal attractions. And almost like, you know, I'm still hanging out with my kids that I've been spawning with my brothers and sisters, my mates. And then you run into a pack of big fish in the marginal water. And you're like, what the hell's going on here? So this clan behavior is basically the big guys have figured it out to where to be. And they know where the bait are. So they're chasing the bait just like a school of stripers. And that's yep. that clan behavior that you get into. Um, but so we're going to take another break. And after, after that break, we are going to sum it all up and take a question from Darren from Calgary and then talk a little bit about rising water and dropping water and hook setting. And then we're going to get into one minute zip clips and then we are done. So we're almost there, folks. We're in the final stages. So bear with us. We are in the streamer evolution and revolution with Rich Strollis. We'll be right back.
I've known Marcos at Hairline for a long time since he had his fly shop in Glen Allen in Chicago suburbs, the fly in field. Marcos was a serious, serious fly tying guru and he had every material known to mankind imported from all over the place. Marcos has since gone to Hairline and has been there for decades now and he's done such an amazing job of, of taking that company and taking it to the upper limit of having a one-stop place where you get the ultimate quality in hooks and materials and feathers and tinsels and designs and tubes. They pretty much have everything for the trout, the salmon, the steelhead fly fisher, the warm water fly fisher, but really they've come into their own, especially in the spay area with the RX hooks, the Daiichi, Alec Jackson hooks, all the intruder wires and materials by Greg Senyo um, and importing some of the best products possible. Um, you won't go wrong by going to Hairline and seeing the product offering they have. They really have pretty much everything. And, and even in the tube section, the HMH tubing and stuff like that, they have gone to the next level. So I highly encourage you to shop at Hairline Tell Marcos I said hi, and it is truly one of the best um, all-around places to go for looking for that special material that you're in the market for. I can't say enough good things about G. Loomis rods. They're made out in Washington State for over 30 years and their latest NRX series are absolute bombs. Steve Rajeff uh, designed these Apex Beasts that are just amazing. Uh, their, their new uh, Nano Silka um, resin system uh, is so amazing that it makes them so much lighter and they can cast with so much more power throughout the whole rod. Um, the lightness and, and the power generates are so much more important for the line speed and, and especially if you're doing scandy tapers underhand casting with sinking heads um deep dredging skagits um with with heavier um weighted intruders um they do it pretty much all and even with floating lines like in long belly uh traditional spay casting uh the stamina for these rods and the long anchors in this traditional styling is amazing um, they're very rich looking and I highly recommend them as does my friend Tom Larimer, they're a representative out on the West Coast. So ask for G. Loomis rods when you go to your fly shop or visit them online at G. Loomis, but you won't be disappointed. Um, their, their, their whole technology is taking off and it's just simply amazing. If you're a serious spay fisherman and a swinger, uh, you're going to really enjoy these rods.
We are back, and this is the final, final, final episode of this long and wonderful and intense podcast that we are having with Mr. Senore, Monsieur Richard Strollis. Uh, what what Strollis? Are you are you Greek? That's from uh, Lithuanian. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, a lot so, of yeses are are Greek. Yeah, okay, got my it. My father's side of the family. My dad is uh, half Polish, half Lithuanian. My mother's side, it's Irish, German, and French. So I'm a mix. Okay, good. You got good. You got good genes in you. Okay, so um, where were we? We are talking about a, a question uh, from a Mr. Darren from Calgary, Alberta, and he says, um, "It's funny. I just had a guy that was fish, uh, doing a space school with me, and he fishes the bow, and his his girlfriend guides on the bow. So Thomas." Uh, I got a question from a Darren. You might know a Darren in Calgary, but I fish the Bow River, Tailwater, and other rivers in Montana. I'm a big fan of Kelly and read his books. I am new to streamer fishing, uh, the streamer gig. Get lots of refusals. It's starting to affect my confidence. Any advice? Well, <laughs> we pretty much summed up a lot of it, but if you had to do a quick, quick and skinny and dirty, Richard, any advice for negating refusals? I'm, I'm going to give you one scenario, and this is something to think about, and it hits back on a few things we talked about earlier. So when you're fishing your flies, you're looking at the bigger picture and your periphery. So I said this to that gentleman, Max, the last time I had him out. When you fish your flies, you should always be seeing where your line is, your fly in relation to the end of your rod, your fly and your line should be tracking with the rod as you move through the water column, whether you're standing in the water or from a boat. So you need to be looking at the window of vision of when that, where you can kind of peer into the water. Now, here's the thing. When you're fishing a brighter fly, it's easier to track it through the water column. But if it's a darker fly, it might take you a while before you get that into your window of vision. So you ideally want to be looking at the big picture with a focus on where you think your fly is coming into the zone. Because as soon as you can pick that up, that's when you can kind of tell if you can see your fly and if anybody's kind of following it. So that's going to dictate how whatever you've got left for line between you and that fish and how you're going to fish it. So it's real easy. We can get into the zone. Of, I just throw them, always hit the bank, always hit the bank, always hit the bank, three strips, pick it back up again. But when you're on foot, you have a better chance of, of connecting if you really thoroughly fish that fly back into your zone. Now, that doesn't mean every time you fish it right to the rod tip, but pay attention. If you got a player in there, and you and you're see him coming up behind your fly, if you're getting the same reaction, you're stripping, he's missing, sometimes they hit it in between your poles and they just completely miss it. If you're fishing a fly that vertically jigs, sometimes they're hitting, they go to strike it in the drop and the, when you pause it, the fly drops out and they miss it, right? That can happen. So it might be something that's out of your ability to fix it. But if you can see that fish coming into the zone and you're getting misses, it, it could be that you might need to slightly change something. So it might be a slight direction change. It could be slow your cadence up. Maybe you got to go, the fish are half off, pay attention to what's going on with their water conditions. Maybe you got to drop the size down. Maybe you're just slightly off on your fly. Maybe you need something a little bit smaller. Those are a pile of different things you can throw in there to kind of hopefully change that situation. Perfect. 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 Presentation angles really quick. I mean, there's, we could write a book about that. These are all things we could spend, but we, you know, we, we have to keep it limited. Um, I like my favorite presentation angle is, is a, a broadside sweep casting that fly way upstream 
allowing it to go down and across and 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 go broadside into the, into that deadly search and destroy trigger that kill trigger that into that swinging motion and again it's that that's fly swinging that you know the spay school is all about that that usually gets the fish a lot of time to look at that fly make up make up in his mind where he wants to chase it and then go into that broadside sweep where that really triggers those neural mess and he gets fired up and slams it. What are your favorite presentation angles, Rich? Yeah, I mean, it, like you said, you could write a book on this, but I would say probably, and I'm going to cater to the person who's fishing on foot. More often than not, I look at my piece of water and I break it down like a clock. So if I'm, I just step in and I'm facing the far bank, I've got from nine to three. So my my if the river's running from left to right. We'll say nine o'clock is, you know, extreme upstream and 12 is directly across. So that nine to three window, if the water's moving left to right, is kind of like that window that I like the most. Like you said, kind of a little upstream, slightly upstream or directly up, working back down. There's a lot to be said about having the head of that fly moving in a downstream uh, angle because I think, you know, it replicates something that the fish are used to seeing. If a bait's going to take off and moving water, there's a very low probability it's going to go fight the current. It's going to head downstream where it can pick up speed. So it's kind of like with that whole situation we gave before with, you know, the two-handed retrieve, burn your fly down river. It, that, a bait fish isn't running up river uh, in fast, heavy water like that. They're usually going down. So that's kind of like one of my favorites. Um, it's, it's kind of the same from a boat. You don't want to get too far behind you on a boat um, either because that can run into some issues. But anywhere from that upper half super uh rising water falling water we did a great piece in in hollowed waters journal that uh kelly and tommy uh chimed in on kelly talked about shimmy a mini talked about fishing a tiny minnow pattern and uh he he went away from saying we're just too we're too caught up on bigger and better big 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 we have to get back to focus the way we used to kiss fish as a kid with salted minnows and little patterns and little tiny Mickey fins and little tiny gray ghosts and things that we used to do. Mickey fins, um, high rising water, falling water, when is right. Higher water pushes bait into the shallows and back eddies and weeds and puddles, um, rising water, trout hunker down and get into, get out of the currents like they should. Cause they're smart to, to metab, uh, save up on their metabolism. Um, you know, so, um, bottom line is when is the right time um, do you need to get down really deep? Um, uh, my take is that sometimes depth is, isn't everything and fish will, if they want it, they'll come up in really high water and cold water. If they really want the damn thing, they could do whatever they want to do, but water temps do play with metabolism. So that is important. You got to focus that if you're streamer stripping in 30 degree water, you're going to have to be, slow it down a little bit and modify yourself, but they will chase it in times where you never thought of, but uh, uh, what we came out with is the water just slowly on the drop is the prime time that fish start coming out to hunt. And they, they've they been hunting in the weeds and stuff like that for a while, but um, it's usually on the drop and, and, um, and you had already talked about colors, but what's your, what's your thought on that, Rich? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I fish it under all water conditions, but there's definitely times I would say the rise on the front end of water coming up, can be just as good as that drop. Um, it might be a little more difficult. The, the fish will typically be more in their lies that you would expect them to be in before the water came up, but the bite can be just as good. Um, you know, when the water's on the drop after, uh, you know, a weather event is usually 
and, and it's timing, you know, but that's usually when it can be really highly productive and those fish will get into spots that you don't typically think you'd see them in. Um, but it, it's all, you got to figure out the pattern for the water that you're given. I, you know, Ray Bergman talked about this in his trout book and, you know, everybody thinks that rising water with trout is the only time to fish streamers and it's not. You can right. get them on streamers all the time. You just, you got to change your patterning. But if you're going to target those two specific areas, the rise, what I will say about the rise, the, the fall is, is better in that you'll have a larger window to fish. Right. The rise, you'll have what we'll call the point of no return. If you right. get, you know, if the river, you get an exorbitant amount of rain, depending on where it is in the system. And I'm just going to give you an example. If it's way up river, miles up river, and it's poured significant amount of inches up there. You're going to have a point where that water has got nowhere to go, but down river and it's going to come to you. And that water clarity is going to completely be shot. All kinds of stuff's going to be in the river. And you got to be able to recognize that the fish might've been red hot and then it shuts off. And that's because you're at that point. Now the fish are going to start to move. They're going to be pushed out of their lies and, their ability to find those flies is going to be diminished. So now you're going to have to wait until that drop comes, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. makes sense. And then it's, it's, it's time of year too. So if you get that water coming up really fast in the summertime, uh, when fish have been dormant, uh, that triggers something massive, even no matter how much it comes up. So, but the spring and cold weather, it could be totally devastating. So it's all relative to that. Um, let's talk really quickly about uh, blowing the hook set. Um, tell us tell us your experience with blowing the hook set and hooking fish on streamers, Rich. Yeah, I mean, it happens a lot. I mean, in, in this is the saltwater guide's worst nightmare is you get a guy that trout fished his whole life and he gets into streamer fishing. And, I, and it's funny, I see a lot of things online nowadays and there's some guys that are writing some awesome stuff um but i've gotten into a few there, there's a there's a few things that you're not going to change my mind on and not, one of them is the strip set when we're fishing streamers in the way that we're talking um and there's been some people that have been very vocal saying that the strip set is not necessary when fishing streamers for trout and i would highly disagree with them it's based upon how you're fishing them and i'm not talking about if you're going to put a weighted jig on a mono rig on an 11 foot rod, how you set the hook is completely different as to what we're talking about here. We're talking about actively casting larger flies and retrieving them through the water column. It's a physics thing. Okay. When, you know, the, the quickest path to somewhere is in a straight line. So when you set the hook on these fish, when, when I increased my hookup ratios was when I stopped trout setting fish and bigger streamers. And I'm talking about with catching bigger fish. You also have the only way to get that fly to penetrate is when I strip set on it and it's a straight line. And, you know, it, it just, it's physics. It's you, you can't refute it. It's it, you're going to lose less fish when you strip set on them and you keep that rod low. I'm not saying you're not going to catch them if you raise the rod tip, because sometimes it's a combination of the two. I'm strip setting and boom, I'm setting the, setting the rod up because I felt that fish bury the hook and now I've raised the rod to fight the fish. But that strip set's huge, you know? Yeah, strip set, you know, and I think one thing is very similar to spay fishing. Uh, you know, we blow hooks on it. And, and Thomas, if you're listening to me, what you did on Tuesday was just absolutely happens all the time. And I, if I had a million dollars for every time I, if I had a dollar for every time I blew a strip set, I'd be a millionaire. Yeah. And, and uh, so it happens to all of us. But, you know, 
I think uh, pulling the trigger prematurely is one of the biggest problems that happens with Atlantic salmon dry fly fishing. It happens with, with everything. And, and then sometimes we just don't let the fish grab a hold of the damn thing and waiting for that heavy weight and then stick in the metal. Um, we just, we just, we're, we're, we're setting the hook on, on fish taking nymphs. I think nymph fishermen make the worst streamer fishermen and nymph fishermen make the worst spay space swingers because they're 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 setting the hook on 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 anything that that that, that they think i, I think a- also matt just to add real quick i think what also happens too is especially if you're fishing a fly that's bright white yellow whatever that the angler can see exactly they, they get buck fever and they end up pulling the fly out of the fish's mouth exactly. that happens a lot too yeah absolutely same thing on atlantic salmon dry fly fishing you see a 20 pound Atlantic coming to the surface, like a submarine, like a U-boat submarine surfacing. And you see his mouth ready to go and you pull the, you know, that's why you say God save the queen or, or you say a lot of other dirty things we can't say on this web, on this <laughs> podcast. Final, this is it. Final one is a lines, reels, rods. We could go on two more hours about that, totally. but um, you know, lines, everybody's loving airflow these days, shovel heads, you know, streamer maxes, things of that nature. Um, you know, some people believe in monofilament fluorocarbon. I've I've been I've I've been fishing this P line 15 pound fluorocarbon lately. And that stuff is it's called a salmon steelhead P line fluorocarbon, things like rope, and it's um it's really good stuff and it's really cheap. Um cigars good stuff. A lot of people have their, you know, maxima they still go with. Uh rods, reels. I mean, I'm fishing switch rods now. I mean, because it just yep. works for me. And uh but your your thought um, and commercial tying hooks, um, uh, what you like in your streamers. So those those four things: lines, monofluorocarbon rods, reels, and commercial tying hooks. Go ahead, Rich. And so uh, lines, I'm kind of a line savant, but um, I, that's kind of one of those other little niches that I kind of go nuts with. I always experiment with different stuff. I fish a slew of different lines. I have floating lines, intermediates, integrated sinks. I bounce back and forth um, between companies. I'm of the mindset. I heard one of your recent uh, podcasters, it might've been uh, Mac Brown talking about how lines have changed and not for the better. And I'm in complete agreement with him. It's the same thing with rods, but that's a whole other story. But I I've found recently um, I, I I've been fishing a lot of SA integrated lines like the sonar cold water sink. I like that. Yeah, uh, I line. still love the airflows, the shovel head, um, the streamer max is the ones I still like. Um, by the way, SA, SA has been doing a phenomenal job. You guys there. Uh, I love your trout textured lines. I love everything that SA is doing right now. Absolutely amazing. I'm even fishing their, their Scandi longs and Scandi shorts, uh, on spay. So keep it up. SA. The stuff gets beaten up off when you're fishing these kinds of flies in the way that we're doing, you always have to be mindful of, I clean my lines a lot. And I also periodically throughout the day, I'm taking a fly off and letting the fly, the line go downstream to get the twist out. Um, reels is a personal thing. I mean, I, my thing is this, I need something. I'm not worried about backing when I'm fishing this way. I, I always laugh at the guys that are like, oh, I had a biggest fish in my life on a, on a trout stream and hook me in the back and I flooded it for 45 minutes. I think Kelly did a piece on it recently. He was hundred percent spot on. I, you know, you probably hooked it in the tail on your click and pull reel and whatever. Um, but I, I need a reel that's going to be able to hold the line. Some of these lines have uh, bigger heads. I, I like mid-arbor reels myself um, and large, if I can get the line on there. You know, the backing's just that, whatever. Um, rods I'm pro particular on. I mean, I've fished pretty much everything out there, but I, I've been working with the guys up at TNT now. They're, 
that's a homegrown close to me where I grew up. I've been fortunate enough to work on a series of streamer rods with them that kind of caters to a lot of the stuff that I fish. Um, I like a, I fish a little shorter rod than most guys do. It's about an eight foot, eight inch uh, streamer stick. And um, I, I have different rods for different applications because I'm way overboard passionate about what I do. Um, I primarily fish a 200 or a 250 grain rod. It's a grain specific stick. Um, they work great out of the boat and on foot. I like more length. And I think when we do our next series, we're probably going to have some with the ability to have longer rods. Cause I think on certain rivers that works a little better, but you know, I, what I will say about rods, if you're getting into this, uh, geez, when I first was geez, 15, 20 years ago, there was no streamer specific rods. It was basically find the fastest action. Six weight was what they were, the rod companies were telling you, and then put your sinking lines on those and go with it. And yeah. although you could cast, uh, you know, further with it, which isn't always the, it's not like in the salt, it's not that, uh, you know, as much of an issue or much of a prerequisite. Um, the fishability on those was terrible. I like a rod that still has some flex in the upper half so that if I do get a big fish on, I feel yep. pretty confident I'm going to get it in and I can feel the rod load. So yep. it's a personal thing. What works Mono, for fluorocarbon, what, what, what you like? Um, I, I like them all. I still fish Maxima too. Um, but I, my thing is when I'm fishing streamers, I want a material that's got low stretch. That's key. So, and when I, the reason being, as I've said this a thousand times is you got to think of it when you set the hook, if a piece of mono, and I've done this in demonstrations, if a mono stretches a couple inches per foot, extrapolate that over the length of a leader. So I'm fishing a floating line with a headbanger and it's a seven foot leader. I might not be able to pull far enough to set that hook. So I want something that's almost like piano wire. Sometimes I, I dictate how it's going to go. If it's lower clear water, I may go to fluorocarbon. If it's tannic, I'll fish all my, uh, maxima, you know, or I'll fish mono. I use a little bit of, e of each. It all depends on the situation. So I don't really have a preference. Beautiful. Okay. One thing we did not talk about before we get into one minute zip clips, yep. but you know, the personal life of Mr. Monsieur Richard Strolis. Um, We didn't talk about optic eyes. Okay. So that's really important. We missed one big one. And I think yep. I covered everything which for these three, four hours. God bless you poor listeners. But the bottom line is, um, you know, optic eyes, they used to be white paint on black thread. Um, they used to be painted on, otherwise they were jungle cock eyes yep. on, you know, Carrie Stevens and Welsh's Grey Ghosts. And that was always the eye world. And now we have so many optic eyes by Fish Skull and we have your headbangers, head sculpins and helmets. And we got everything and we got barbell eyes and we got Popovic eyes and we got these eyes and we got everything. Do you, how much do you think eyes make a difference? Well, I mean, I definitely think there's something to be said about it. And I think with predaceous fish, I think it's a trigger, um, you know, because it's something they can hone in onto. I don't necessarily know if it's super important because I'm going to be 100% honest with you. I'm holding four flies in my hand that I fish pretty regularly, three of which have different styles of eyes on them. Some have molded. This one's got fake jungle cock. This one has molded. And then this fourth one doesn't have any. And this one catches just as many fish as these. So I think there's some relevance there. The level of importance, I don't know. My feeling is this. If you tie, which I think if you're an angler who ties his own flies, has got a leg up on the guy who doesn't, or gal, experiment with it. Find what works for you. 
Yeah, I'm a firm believer in optic eyes, and I learned that as a little boy ice fishing for perch. Yep. And we used to take perch eyes and take the we had to pull the eye out of the fishes because we used to keep like 150 perch. The re, the limit back then was 150 perch on Lake Simcoe and Lake Erie and Lake Chautauqua. And we used to take the we'd gouge the perch eye out and just put the perch eye on the hook, and the perch went crazy for the eye. And they they even ignored minnows and they went for the eye. So if the perch are smart enough to do that, then I think a big brown trout or, or a big trout of any kind is smart enough to do that. So on that note, we are done, and we're going to do a quick one-minute zip clip. So here we are. These are my doer's profiles. And when I was growing up, I used to read the back of the magazine and said, doer's profile. And then at the end, and scotch, doer's, of course. Um, so first of all, first one, one-minute zip clip, you're only allowed to answer like in 30 seconds or less. And um, the first one is your favorite thing to do when you are not fly fishing, Rich. It, it'd be one of two things. It'd be either working in my garden or working out. I actually enjoy exercising. Favorite sport? Hmm. Oh, boy. Used to love basketball, but I've really grown a tone to ice hockey. Okay, there you go. Uh, favorite book, um, non-fly fishing, and then favorite book, fly fishing. Uh, we took to the woods, Louise Dickinson Rich, okay. or non-fishing. Okay. And boy, you had to ask me a fishing one. Did you really? It's, it's got to be Trout by Ray Bergman. Yeah, that, that's absolutely it. Um, favorite food, uh, if you had your one last meal, what would it be? Probably would be anything seafood. Okay, yeah, on the East Coast, yeah, I, I hate you because you're on the East Coast. Favorite beer? Um, well, I'm in the Mecca of, you know, the uh, craft beer stuff here. So it would have to be any IPA or double IPA for Treehouse uh, Brewing and Mass. If it was one, it would probably be any rendition of green. Favorite wine? Do you drink wine? No, but, you know, I, I've on occasion, you know, I'll do, I like a red, like a Merlot, not any specific brand, something dry. Okay. Um, favorite um, scotch? A bourbon guy. Okay, bourbon. Oh, favorite bourbon. I'm drinking a lot of bourbon these days. So I like bourbon, you know, bourbon. either Duke or uh, you know, Duke or Woodford. Or Pappy, if you get yeah. a hold of Pappy, right? But yeah, that's uh, I found I found a lot of Pappy similarities in a lot of different bourbons. I'll have to tell you the ones I've been drinking lately. Um, okay, um, so if um a mono or floor carbon, we talked about that. Um, what about um if you had to do it all over again, what would you do? Yeah, I don't know if I would do change anything. I mean, I, I'm I don't really have any regrets. I I'm a very fortunate man. I've had the ability to do things that I'm extremely passionate about. So um I don't know that I would change things. I mean, I would probably if I was to change things, I'd probably go fishing more places. Amen. 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 Favorite place to fish? If That's a tough to one too, one, but if you had to uh, pick one, one, just one. It would probably be down in Chile. Okay. I remember that big brown trout, that big, beautiful brown trout you caught down there. Yeah, it gives me nightmares. That was a beast. Favorite movie? Man, that's a tough one. God, I, I kind of like funny, like stupid comedies, you know, like okay. airplane type stuff. Yeah, yeah. Give me one. <laughs> Those are funny. I mean, yeah. I, are you a Bill I like, Murray guy? 
Bill Murray too. You know, Caddyshack's a good one. I mean, Shawshank Redemption. If I want to get serious, I like that movie. But you know, funny stuff, dumb humor. I hear you. And uh, there was one other question, and I forgot. Oh, favorite uh, sweet sweets? Would you what to, if you had a debt to dig into like your sweets? What sweet just drives you crazy? It has to be chocolate. Okay, what chocolate? What what kind of chocolate? Super dark. I like the brown brownies. Yeah, I mean, well, my okay. I take that back. So my mom, <laughs> my mom makes these. My mom's a phenomenal baker, by the way. So I grew up in a household with like there was always sweets on that on the counter every every week. So my mom makes these things called cream puffs. Yeah, and me and my father, growing up as a kid, they're like this, like you know pastry type thing filled with this custard cream and then a dark chocolate over the top and you keep them in the fridge. My, my mom would make those. Me and my dad would go and we'd weigh them and pick the heaviest ones. So it'd probably have to be a cream puff. And what was your mother's favorite dish that she made for you when you were younger? Hmm. My mother's favorite dish? No, that she made for you. That she made. Oh, that I liked? That, yeah, that she made for, for, for little Richie. Probably Reuben Casserole. Okay. There you go. All right. On that note, I have nothing really more. Oh, oh, one more thing. Netflix special or Prime special. Do you watch any Netflix movies? Yeah, me and my wife will delve into some of that stuff sometimes. What was um, the best one you watched? What was the one we just finished watching? Oh, God, you had to ask. I mean, uh, I, I liked a lot. Ozark, of were you an Ozark guy? Ozark was pretty awesome. You just got me. I like that one. <laughs> Go that watch was- Hunters. It's on um it's on Prime. It's about Nazi hunters getting all these Nazi war criminals. Really? It's uh, De Niro. De Niro's in it. I'll have to check that uh, no, one out. No, no, Pacino, excuse me, Pacino. Pacino Hunters. Hunters season 1 and season 2. Hunters with Al Pacino. Oh my god, is it good? So check I'll that out. I'll check it out. I I did like um Peaky Blinders, that was another one. I oh, heard. Peaky Blinders. My son's a big Peaky Blinders fan. I got to get into Peaky Blinders. All right. On that note, we had done three, four hours. I don't, we lose time when we're having fun. But Rich, it was a real pleasure having you. Uh, you're insightful. You're, um, it's going to be great. We, you know, we had Tommy Lynch. We had Kelly Gallup. Now we have Rich Strollis. We have taken a trilogy. Of, and there's so many more greats out there. Uh, but it was so phenomenal to have you, brother. Uh, keep up the great work. Keep up the passion. Uh, thank you for listening to Hollow Water Podcast, people. On that note, we are going to say goodbye. Arrivederci. Arrivederci. Au revoir. Auf Wiedersehen. Dovizenia. Das Vidania. And uh, adios, amigos, for another edition with Mr. Strolis. And we will be back. We got more great people coming. And uh, keep the faith. And we are flying around in our drone. And we will someday see you or you someday will see us. So bye-bye. Bye-bye, Rich. Thank you. Take care. Appreciate it. Good night.